Hey, this is Sam for Dobbs. If you need tires, hop on our website, go to Dobbs.com. We'll save you time searching brands, sizes, and prices, and save you money because we sell tires at the lowest price in town, guaranteed. For deals you can use, click on go to Dobbs.com now. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You're looking at the, the probables and say, hey, we're going to St. Louis on Friday. Who we got? Oh, no. There's not an oh-no guy. Right. And to me, I truly do believe to win a championship, you got to have an oh-no guy. Yep. Chances are you should have a couple of oh-blank guys to, to go do that. That's why the Phillies were as dangerous as they were. Now, certainly their lineup had something to be a little bit afraid of. They got a little bit more dangerous with the addition of Trey Turner. That was a pretty good pickup. Uh, but I still believe that you need the front end. I had a bit of an epiphany last night, guys. And alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, oh, I'm Brandon Kylie. That was Brad Thompson on the fast lane a couple of weeks ago, talking about the Cardinals' current situation with their starting rotation. We are now down to the nitty-gritty of the free agency market. Carlos Correa signed last night. Basically, the only elite-level player that remains is Carlos Rodon. Now, guys, how many players, how many pitchers across Major League Baseball last year, looking at the starting pitching specifically, how many starting pitchers do you think had a better strikeout rate last season than Carlos Rodon? Any guesses? Played this game before, so I'll say... I'm going to go five. Say two. Zero. Zero starting pitchers last I year had a known. better strikeout rate than Carlos Rodon. The year before that, guess what? He had an even better strikeout rate at 37%. When Carlos Rodon is healthy, big disclaimer there, He is among the best starting pitchers in all of baseball. Here's the problem. He's not healthy a whole lot. And in his career, he, like 2020, pitched seven innings. 2019, pitched 34 innings. Before that, pitched more than 120 innings twice. So there's not been an extended stretch of Carlos Rodon being healthy in his career. But when he's healthy, he is legitimately elite. And right now, as I look at the Cardinals team and I look at what the free agency market has to offer and at least what has been reported to be there on the trade market, I don't see a ton, honestly, that I'd say, "Mm, can't get through the offseason without adding that. The one guy that I could say that for is Carlos Rodon. I have talked myself into the notion that if it is reasonable, and let's be honest, a lot of these contracts have not been reasonable this offseason, but if you can get them for five or six years, 
I'm in on the idea of the Cardinals acquiring Carlos Rodon. Alex, this is the last remaining legitimately elite level free agent. Are you in on the idea of the Cardinals acquiring Carlos Rodon? Yeah, I mean, I'm. It's, it's hard not to be in on the idea of Carlos Rodon when you get a guy who is that, as BT mentioned, the old blank guy that you're going into face. But the, the injury stuff is just been my concern and I find myself always asking the question if he's these light if he's this much of a lights out player or why aren't why aren't other teams getting this done fast enough like it feels like other teams are looking at it and being like oh man it seems like it's a little bit too pricey for us or we don't want to go that years well look at the, look around the the contenders in major league baseball how many of them have the dire need as a number one starter the way that the cardinals do I think that's part of it as well like, if you're one of those other teams... But even if you have a dire need, you still want the guy. I mean, the Padres didn't have the dire need for Xander Bogarts, but they went out there and said, blanket, let's get him. But I think there's more risk here because and of And that's Rodon. why I'm a little worried about it. No, I understand. But what I'm saying is, if you're the Cardinals, you look at your front, the front end of your rotation, you don't have a legitimate number one right now. Basically, every other contender does. I mean, you look around, the, the Braves have that guy. The Padres have that guy. The Dodgers have that guy. The Mets have that guy. The Phillies have that guy. Everybody else that you're competing with, they've already got their number one starter internally. So when you look at, okay, should we go sign Carlos Rodon? Sure, if it, if the market comes back to us, I understand how those teams could all be interested in a guy like Rodon. But is the need there? No, it's a want. For the Cardinals, it very well may be a need. And that's where you get to the desperation point of, you know what, it makes sense for us. When you look at what is available, you look at what we have, that's how it becomes of interest to us. For some reason, man, I just, I, I don't, and I know you need that guy, but I just look at the Cardinals rotation and I sit there and I say, I think I'm okay with how this is set up right now going into the season. I'd like to have a Carlos Rodon, but I don't think I need that right now. And I might be the only one in this category, but I, I feel like the Cardinals are actually in a good spot right now with their pitching. And I think this is one of those things that you look at and say, okay, if we need this, then we can address this at the trade deadline. I, I just think the Rodon deal is too risky for my liking. Five, seven years, whatever it ends up being. It sounds like the Yankees are balking at uh, seven years. It sounds like they are kind of pushing away from the Rodon market and turning towards Nathan Avaldi, which I think says something. And to your point of teams around the National League have their guy kind of internally, I think the Cardinals have their guy internally. And he's got the same risk going into a season banking on him as the ace, but not as risky as Rodon because Rodon will be making around 25 to $30 million, and that is Jack Flaherty. And I know people don't like to say that, and, and he turned to the, well, he's dealt with a bunch of injuries. He's just a massive question mark at this point. I think Rodon's still a question mark, and that's why I'm scared to hand him a five- to seven-year contract because of the injuries that have plagued him the two seasons prior before his breakout in San Francisco last year. Now, if the deal kind of starts to pull back even further, and we were kind of talking about this in the office, if... His market doesn't develop outside of the Yankees, although I, I still think San Francisco was going to look to get him locked up long term. If it starts to f fall back towards that three, four year deal mark, then yeah, then I'll have some interest because I, I kind of agree with Alex. I don't necessarily think that adding the top end ace is in the category of need. I think it's more in the category of want because I, I agree with what Alex's assessment was. I don't think the Cardinals pitching 
is in dire need of a major upgrade. And I think Rodon's a major upgrade. I, I think the rotation is fine for the St. Louis Cardinals. That can still get them, one, to the playoffs, and two, help ha- be a part of a winning playoff team. So I view Rodon as more of a one. If his market falls down in that three, four years, I'm not even worried about the dollar figure. To me, it's more of the years the concern for me. Then I'm willing to jump on board and sign Rodon. It might not be an O-blank where you got to go take on the Cardinals and take on Flaherty and Michaelis and Montgomery and Mats, but I, I mean, I still think that's a grind to go through because you've got legitimate I mean even if you've got three guys who are legit number twos in your rotation I think that's a good spot to be in for this Cardinals I think this is more of a spot that if it falls in your laps take advantage of it but I wouldn't be out there throwing everything I could to get that person the reason why I disagree like wholeheartedly disagree honestly at this point is because when I look at the Cardinals I don't see them doing the Luis Castillo type of trade at the deadline They have no history of doing that with this front office, really, of going out and getting the guy. Because why? Because it's a bidding war. And we've seen this with free agency. We've seen it with the trade deadline. They don't like winning the the bidding wars against other teams. So if they end up needing a front end starter, if for whatever reason, Jack Flaherty does not work out this year, maybe it's injury, maybe it's effectiveness, whatever the reason is. What's the insurance plan there? There really is none for the Cardinals if you don't, like I don't think they're going to get that number one starter at the deadline. Maybe it's Shane Bieber. Maybe it's somebody else that becomes available. So now you go into the second half of the season. You're potentially going into the playoffs and your plan once again is to go into the playoffs with a rotation that is more about contact than it is about strikeout. There's one guy available right now and all it requires is money that you can sign and he fixes that for you potentially. And you got him signed for the next five plus years when you have a rotation right now that is one player signed beyond this upcoming season. If you sign Rodon, maybe it means you don't end up having to re-sign Jordan Montgomery. This is the other thing that I think needs to be taken into account. If their plan right now is to re-sign Jordan Montgomery to a three-year deal, four-year deal maybe worth $20 million per year, would you guys rather, let's assume, and I don't know that this is going to be the case or not, but we just walk down this hypothetical path. If it ends up being a five-year, $30 million per year deal for Carlos Rodon with maybe like a player option on the back end, team option, something else that is, it gets it to like 170 in terms of the total AA or total money. Five years, $150 million for Carlos Rodon or three years at $65 million for Jordan Montgomery. Which of those do you feel more comfortable with? <laughs> Neither of them. <laughs> because because the likelihood is the Cardinals are probably going to re-sign Jordan Montgomery. Yeah, I mean, it's Carlos Rodon you feel more comfortable with in that spot. So wouldn't you rather than sign Rodon now, trade Jordan Montgomery for maybe one of those left-handed bats that could become available for him, and now you've got Rodon in your rotation leading it with Flaherty as your number two, Michaelis as your number three, Matson Wayno as your four five. Doesn't that make you feel better then? than having Jordan Montgomery fit into that rotation right now. Because that's probably the way that this would work out if you went out there and signed Carlos Rodon. The money See, works as well, by the way. I, I actually would lean towards the Montgomery deal because I don't think it's as risky as the Rodon one. Now, I understand there's more upside in Rodon than there is in Jordan Montgomery, but I think Montgomery provides less risk. I could see a Rodon contract where you sign it to five years. And look, I've always been one of these guys that's been skeptical of long-term deals. I was out on the Tatis deal the moment it was signed. Mm -hmm. Not looking too bad. Also, 14 years versus five is I I get it, but but again, we've talked about this. Pitchers break a lot lot more than what position players do. There's risk involved in this deal, but I think you need to inherit a little bit of risk to be able to compete with the likes of the Dodgers, the Giants, the Padres, uh, the 
the Phillies and See, this I is where I, I guess this is where we disagree. Is I think right now your rotation can compete against those teams' rotations. For a World Series? Will it be, fa- will it be favored? No, but I, I think you can compete with those teams. I mean, I, you I competed think they, with the Phillies with Jose Quintana, and your offense failed you there. That's why I went into this game. Yeah, Could but you get I, through three rounds at their rotation last year, I though? Mean, I would have probably argued Ho- no. Jose Quintana didn't show me that he couldn't pitch against these guys in a playoff series. I mean, that's why the bigger need this offseason was going to get offense because I feel like you can manage pitching wise. And even if you don't have that ace and look, you're going risk no matter what with your pitching staff, because Michaelis is older. Wainwright's older. Matt's just had an injury plagued season. Montgomery's had them and Jack Flaherty has just had them. But I don't know if I want to add another guy who's got a, an injury risk career and say six years that this guy's going to be a part of the rotation because what if I get into the same spot with him that I've been with other guys in my rotation? You know who has the same amount of injury history as Carlos Rodon that we don't talk a whole lot about? Jordan Montgomery. Jordan Montgomery, prior to the last two years... But I'm not started, paying Jordan Montgomery six, seven years for $180 million. You might end up signing him to a three- or four-year deal worth $20-plus million per year. That's the going rate for pitchers like Jordan Montgomery right now. And in 2018, he started six games. In 2019, started one game. In 2020, finally got to 10 games. Was terrible that year after he came off of the injury. 2020 was the pandemic year, too. So he he was a healthy, a full year. Right. What I'm saying is he was ineffective because of the injury and coming back from that. He's been really good over the last two seasons. Guess who's been better? Carlos Rodon. So if you're looking for the injury-plagued issues... You got the same questions, or at least you should, about Jordan Montgomery as you do about Carlos Rodon. And that's why I don't want to give a six- or seven-year deal to a starting pitcher, and I don't care who he is. I don't want to give that long-term deal to a starting pitcher because I don't want to get into this spot, and then three of the six years I'm talking about, well, is he ever going to be healthy for us? And also, how often do we say it, too, in a long-term contract? I, I think Montgomery will cost less than Rodon for the length of that deal. And what can I do with the extra, I don't know, $10, $10 million that's going to be saved between Montgomery and uh, Rodon in the following seasons? Also, what is the difference between having Rodon versus Montgomery? I think that's where, for me, I lean towards the one of these guys is arguably the best pitcher in the National League when he's healthy. The other guy is a fine number three starter who didn't make your rotation in the playoffs last year in a three-game wildcard series, potentially. That was just because we had Wayno. Yeah, for sure. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. In 15 minutes, we're talking to Chris Kerber, the voice of the Blues. I want to get your guys' thoughts. 65780 is your comfort service text line. Also, the mic drop features on the 101 ESPN app. How would you feel if the market doesn't develop for Rodon the way that he expected it to? Maybe it's not that seven-year deal. It's five or six. And instead of being $35 million per year, maybe it's like 27. How would you feel about the Cardinals going out and making that play for their legit number one starter in Carlos Rodon? Send us a mic drop. Send us a text. 65780. That is all coming up as we go along here today. Chris Kerber at 1130. But coming up next, The Athletic put together their poll of the top teams moving forward in the NHL. Where would the Blues rank three years from now? It's not good. We'll tell you next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. 
So, Alex, I was reading over on The Athletic earlier today about what the NHL standings are going to look like three years from now. They were projecting this, and they think the best team in the league at that point will be the New Jersey Devils. That's what happens, I suppose, whenever you tank for a few years. They've got the Carolina Hurricanes second, the Colorado Avalanche third, the Toronto Maple Leafs fourth, and the New York Rangers at five. Here locally, of course, what people care about is, so where do the St. Louis Blues rank? Kept scrolling down and down and you probably missed them down they couldn't be that low you get all the way to 27 and you find the st louis blues and they ranked everything on a scale um and they have the blues young core as being one of the worst in the nhl and by young core they're discussing specifically players under the age of 23 and their prospects they aren't particularly high on the roster they do think highly of the ownership and the market they think highly of the management and coaching the salary cap situation, though, not great. Here is what Thomas Drance had to say about the Blues. He said, quote, the St. Louis Blues are off to a slow start and have some storm clouds forming on the horizon, particularly with a blue line group that seems to be getting a little long in the tooth. They have a ton of money and term committed to it in the foreseeable future. Nonetheless, Doug Armstrong and Craig Burby provide the Blues with a stellar one-two leadership punch. Army and the Blues have identified pro and amateur talent efficiently and with extraordinary consistency over the past couple of decades. And he's adjusted with the times, making sharp, progressive bets this summer on long-term second contracts for Cairo and Thomas, for example. Barubi similarly has evolved into one of the most innovative coaches in the game. The Blues have shifted their identity after their cup win to uh, systemically chase efficiency in manufacturing offense. Teams across the league are following suit. The sincerest form of flattery in a copycat league, end quote. Again, that comes from Thomas Strantz over at The Athletic. The important part here, Alex, the Blues, according to The Athletic, 27th three years from now, which seems to go along with the conversation we've been having of, is it a retool or a rebuild that could be on the horizon? In my opinion, this would seem to indicate they believe it's going to be a rebuild. Yeah, and it's hard to deny it when you look at the spot that they're in when it comes to, of course, Thomas is talking about the defenseman there when you talk about four guys that eat up so much of the salary. And then when you get to the offensive side of things and guys who may not live up to the potential of their contracts that you've got, I mean, it doesn't look very bright for this team. The question just becomes, how can you navigate around this? And it's going to be a tough task for Doug Armstrong. I mean, I was looking at this list and looking at the top 15 in these categories of teams that will look good in the next three years in 12 of the top 15 teams If you go from 2016 season all the way up to that season where COVID shut things down, I mean, all of those teams were in the bottom half of the National Hockey League. So, of course, they kind of put themselves in the spot where they can draft well and they can get the right players and kind of build that correct core. The question just becomes to Doug Armstrong, did you bank on the wrong players? And I still think that you can find a way to navigate through these tough waters. If you find a way to maybe shed one bad salary and kind of retool your team. But the question becomes, can you shed that one salary, whomever it might be and retool with this? You've got money opening up when O'Reilly and Tarasenko and Barbashev's contracts go away. You've got your goaltender in place, which I think is always the toughest thing to find. The question becomes, can you build a core around that goaltender? And that's going to ha- it doesn't look good because you have you don't have any young players coming up through the system. So you're going to have to bank on free agency and trades unless you're bad for a year or two and you select really high. And then you can flip that script really quick. And, and the reason I have concerns about them moving forward and going towards I, again, I think it's tough to rebuild when you have such 
big contracts like they do on the books with guys, your defensemen, as we've talked about, Krug Falk, 6.5, Preko, that's in that range. you got the fan, or forwards that are making around that as well. I, I think it's going to be tough because I think to go a rebuild route, you do have to find a way to shed one of those big salaries, and I just don't think they can. And I know we've we talked about this in the office. The Army's shown an ability to move some bad contracts in the past, looking at you, Yori Laterra. Uh, but I, I think it's going to be tougher this year. I mean, he had trouble moving the Scandella contract, and I think he wanted to move the Scandella contract this past offseason, and he was making $3.275 million. So how much tougher is it going to be to move Six and a half million from a defenseman, or maybe there's a Ford, one of these big contracts that he's looking to move from. I'm not saying uh, he's looking to move Shen, but just throwing his name out there, he's making six point five as well. That's a bigger number than what three three is, and that's kind of where Latera's number was. It's where like Berglund's was when he was able to move those contracts. I think it's going to be tough for him to move those deals, and especially when you look at the cap, and it's only yep. going to go up one million dollars. I, I think if the cap moved up four million, like we had heard rumblings about back in October then I think it becomes easier for Army to navigate the waters and make one of those trades, get rid of one of the contracts. But the cap only projected to go up $1 million now. I think it becomes too tough, and it just seems really impossible to move one of those deals, which is what I think has to happen if you're going to kickstart a rebuild. And for those wondering what Tanner's talking about there, there was a report yesterday coming out of the hockey meetings um, with – Commissioner Gary Bettman. Pierre Lebron reported this over on The Athletic. He wrote, despite some hope last October that the cap would jump by more than $4 million if a certain revenue threshold was met this season, hockey-related revenues are expected to fall well short of that. The players won't quite be done paying off the escrow from the pandemic, and therefore it is looking likely that we'll see just a $1 million bump in the cap this summer to $83.5 million. He did add that there could be some sort of a negotiation that takes place, but that won't happen for a while, where Maybe it could bump up a little bit more than that if, and this gets into some like mumbo jumbo pandemic stuff, but basically they would have to smooth the cap instead of it spiking next year from like $83.5 million to maybe like 88, 89, they would smooth it to where it goes up incrementally over the next few years as a result. So that's possible, but let's operate under the assumption that this ends up being the case. It's going to be really hard to move money in the NHL again. It's already been hard over the last couple of years to do so, and it's only getting harder because these teams had those long-term deals in place with the expectation that the cap would continue rising in future years. I I brought this up a couple of, I think probably a week ago now. We don't have to go in it long-term, but the San Jose Sharks are the team that immediately comes to mind for me when when I look at where the Blues are now and what could be coming and what you hope is not coming on the horizon. The Sharks went to the Stanley Cup in 2016. They lost in the first round the next year, lost in the second round the year after that, and then went to the conference finals in 2019. We remember how that ended. The Blues basically ended any hope of the Sharks being able to do anything. The Sharks finish in their division over the next few years, eighth, sixth, sixth, and they're currently seventh. It's not good. It it ended up going really, really poorly for them. And I think if I were to look at the Blues, what can they do differently to avoid what happened to the Sharks. that That's what I would be looking at right now if I was Doug Armstrong is where did they go wrong? What did they build around that ended up being the wrong bets? And how do I avoid making those similar kinds of bets on the Blues? You might have already done that. I mean, unfortunately, you might have already fallen into that trap when it comes to Eric Carlson's. Although Eric Carlson right now is playing well, he actually might get traded and garner something for them. But you were able to move on from Brent Burns, but you're still paying. I think they're paying a yeah 2.7 for the next couple of seasons. Um, they've had a couple of guys that they've bought out, but it comes down to banking on the wrong players. And this is the hard part to know. Like the, the same team was there last year with the exception of David Perron and we were talking about a team that might be able to knock off Colorado and go to a Stanley Cup final there. 
you got to get the best out of the players that you have, but you might have already fallen into that pit in terms of giving guys contracts and being locked into them for the next four years. I, I just, I always feel like teams are desperate, and if they really need something, they might be willing to take on a contract depending on where they stand in the cap and if they need something. But for the Blues, it really comes down to the difference between San Jose and St. Louis is can you get more production out of the players that you're paying than what San Jose was getting out of their guys? Because for the longest time, they weren't getting it from Eric Carlson, and now all of a sudden they are, but they've already gone down too deep into this hole. Can the Blues get the production out of their guys that they're paying right now? In 15 minutes, we're getting into questions and answers. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. But next, the voice of the Blues, Chris Kerber, joins us. He, I believe, is out in Western Canada right now as the Blues are taking on the Edmonton Oilers tomorrow night. Looking forward to catching up with Chris Kerber. What has he seen that's changed for them over the last couple of games? We'll ask Kerbs next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. And we are going out to the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line to be joined by the voice of the blues, Chris Kerber here on 101 ESPN. The blues won on Monday night. They went to overtime, got a point on Sunday as well against Colorado. They're hoping to keep that streak alive of getting some points tomorrow night at Edmonton. Curbs, we appreciate the time as always. How you doing today, man? Brandon, I'm doing good. How are you? Uh, doing very well. So let's start with the obvious. What has changed in your mind over the last two games that we have seen from the Blues? Just consistent game from one shift to the next, the style of play. Get the puck in deep. Put it to areas that you can get it. Put it in the zone where the goalie can't touch it every single time and give yourself a chance to bang for it. And uh, that that retrieval style of hockey has been big. And, and and honestly, it's not just in the offensive zone, but going after the puck and being relentless on the back check has been huge. Go back a couple of games ago when you know Ryan O'Reilly back checked through the neutral zone, picked the puck up, he saw it and connected on a goal to Josh Lebel. Like it was I mean it was just vintage Ryan O'Reilly hockey. And uh, we're seeing that for more and more players, I think. So I think that's probably really the easiest thing is is just simplistic playing the style of hockey that this team needs to play to win. Curbs, how impactful is it going to be for this team if their penalty kill, I don't want to say is fixed, because of course you're going to have issues and ups and downs throughout a season, but if it's back to what it's been in the past? Huge. It's going to be huge. I think if you go back and you flip through your scorebook and you look at when those short, when those power play goals had been given up, uh, and and look at what the score was. Did it extend a 2-1 deficit to 3-1? to Did it allow the other team to tie the game 2-2? They, they seem to be really impactful. Very rarely a few of those shorthand or power play goals that the Blues have given up have been inconsequential. So I really think, and, and I still think it's going to take a little time here, but the two days they had off before these last two home games, the two days that they have off yesterday and today, the two days that they're going to have off between the Calgary and the Vancouver games. Now, one of those days is going to be an actual full day off where you guys don't go to the ring. But those those are huge opportunities for Ryan or for Mike Van Ryan to really grab a hold of the penalty kill as he took it over a few weeks ago and 
and get in some of the details that he really needs to work on and wants to work on. And I, listen, he's he's so detail oriented about the puck goes here. Your stick lanes have to be here. You have to adjust to this angle to do this, how you read off of each other. And I think we're seeing that because I think we also saw uh, we also saw some shuffling of the penalty kill time. You know, you've seen Brandon Sod get a lot more penalty kill time. Byler, Ivan Barbashev as well. Those two are probably the best two penalty killers over the last two games. So I think shifting some of the personnel has been a big help, and, and the practice time has been a big part of that. We're talking to Chris Kerber, the voice of the Blues here on 101 ESPN. Kerbs, I heard you on an interview the other day, something that really kind of stuck with me, and I I wanted to hear if you could expand on it with us. He talked about how the team has kind of been handed back to the veterans, and you think that's been a big part of why they've turned this thing around. Can you speak on that? What what do you think has changed there? Is it ice time? Is it a leadership thing? What? How did they hand it back to the veterans in your mind? Well, the leadership thing didn't change. That's that's the leadership group. Ironically, I thought the ice time shifted a little more than it was. I looked it up last night, and it hasn't been quite as drastic. However, however, if you look at Ryan O'Reilly's uh, ice time, and you you look at the fact that he's back up in that seventeen, eighteen, nineteen range, uh, or nineteen, twenty range, even four out of the last six games, those things matter. The other thing that I really noticed last night is we're looking at some numbers. Ryan O'Reilly has been back to taking about 22 to 25 face-offs a game over the last five games. It's a lot more than Robert Thomas. Robert Thomas has only taken 10 face-offs in each of the last two games. And that, by the way, is not knocking Robert Thomas. Uh, he, he's been great. He, he's, he's over 53% on the face-off dot, and it's been fantastic. But I think what it's done is it's given Ryan O'Reilly a little more rhythm getting his game back, and I think that this team knows, and my point was that if the season's not going well and it's not going the way you want, and you're giving more of that ice time to Robert Thomas, to Jordan Cairo, to the guys that will become the main focus of this team down the road, I don't know that that time is yet. I still think it's Ryan O'Reilly, Braden Shen, Colton Pareko. I think Vladimir Tarasenko has probably put his best three games on the ice in the last three games, in my opinion, in terms of consecutive games. And, of course, Jordan Bennington. So I think you have to, instead of you know, 15, 16 minutes a game and 12 face-offs for Ryan O'Reilly, I really do think that it comes down to somebody like him back to playing 18 to 20 minutes a game and 25 face-offs and, and, and have him be the captain and be the leader that he can on the ice. And I think that's what we're seeing. Curbs, a lot of a lot has been discussed when it comes to the Blues' defense this season. They've had their ups and downs, just like the team overall has. But I, I want to hone in with you specifically on the top four, Falk, Krug, Letty, and Pareko. How would you assess those four seasons so far? Yeah, we asked that to Craig Berube actually a couple of days ago. Uh, I think he's really happy with the last four or five games of of Nick Letty uh, skating with the puck a lot more, skating better. You saw him get uh, what, three straight games, uh, picking up assists. That part's there. Uh, Justin Falk, I think he's gotten pretty consistent all season long. I think they'd like to see him make a little more decisive plays with the puck, maybe not just sling it around the boards and, and, and get it out, but it's quick. I think they think that there's a little more for him on that side of things. Tory Krug's game really is all about puck ability, puck movement, uh, controlling the puck. He, he doesn't have the size. It, it's going to be coming out of the corners with that grit that he has and then making great plays with the puck. And I thought his passing in the last game was, was excellent. And Colton Perico, and I, listen, I know the big guy's taking you know, a lot of heat. Uh, 
you go back a couple games ago, Greg Berube didn't mind his positioning at all on the game-tying goal. Put that more towards bad luck, the way the puck bounced. Did not like his positioning at all on the game-winning goal against uh, with Ranton in there. So, But I, I think they'd like to see more consistency with Pareko. I love the fact that they put him on the power play with Justin Falk, with Pavlovich Navich out. He's clearly shooting the puck more. I thought Colton had a really good game uh, against Nashville. And the biggest thing for Colton is they want to see, when he gets that puck on his stick, skate with it. Just skate. I mean, I, I've seen fast skaters in this National Hockey League not be able to catch him when he gets that big body moving. And, and they, they still believe that, that, that there's another level to Colton Pareko in terms of being a real difference maker night in, night out. And they're doing their best to see with how they can pull that out of him. But, you know, all in all, all in, listen, you assess the defenseman on this team, it's hard to do individually with the inconsistency that we've had at forward to. You really have to look at the team defense to get the right picture. Curbs, final question that I've got for you, and we're talking to Chris Kerber, the voice of the Blues here on 101 ESPN, your home for the Blues. I wanted to ask you about a report that Pierre Lebrun had yesterday. He said he did an informal informal poll of governors over two and a half days, and the question was simple. Do you favor the idea of a play-in tournament before the Stanley Cup playoffs? He asked 12 different governors. It was 12 to nothing among those governors in favor of adding the play-in round. The sequence that he thinks that it should be is a 7 versus 10, 8 versus 9, three-game series, best of three over the course of three days, and then you get into that first round. So the first, that play-in tournament would not be considered the quote-unquote playoffs, but it would lead into the postseason Curbs, what are your thoughts on this idea? Because it's 12 nothing in favor for the governors. Where do you stand on this? Well, I stand with the commissioner on this one, and I, I think our playoffs are fantastic the way they are. I really do. It's the best playoffs in pro sports. And, uh, you know, I, I, I look back and, you know, the, the eighth, ninth, tenth seed, and eighth seed is already in. The ninth, tenth seed, ah, yeah, is there much of a difference between eight and ten these days? The parity is so good, no. So what really difference does it make? Uh, look, for a long time, the knock on the National Hockey League was every team made the playoffs. You had 16 teams make the playoffs when you only had 22 teams in the league, right? And, and that's now you look at what all these other leagues are doing, and all these other leagues are pretty much quickly inching up to 18 or to 16 teams in the playoffs in almost every sport. So uh, I, I like the way the playoffs are, to be honest with you. I, I don't think they need to change it. I don't think they need to tweak it. I don't think they need to adjust it. Now, Look, I get the revenue part of it, so eventually will they? Yeah, I think eventually they will. But if you're not going to call it the regular season and then that's not going to be considered a playoffs, what in the heck is it going to be considered? And what do you do with those stats? I guess you just have a totally separate category for for play-in stats. But I I think, look, if, if you're not top eight in the regular season of an 82-game season, you don't deserve to be in there, and and I think that that keeps legitimacy to your to your regular season. So for the time being, I'm cool with keeping it as it is. Everybody's entitled to a bad opinion, Curbs, and this just happens to be one of yours. I understand it. <laughs> <laughs> Curbs, appreciate the time as always, man. We'll talk with you again next week. Enjoy yourself up in Western Canada. I'm sure it's going to be a great time. 
All right. You guys have an awesome week. Thanks. Absolutely. That's Chris Kerber, the voice of the blues here on 101 ESPN. You can follow him on Twitter at Chris Kerber. You can hear him tomorrow night. Blues at the Edmonton Oilers. Alex will have your pregame starting at 7. Puck drop for that coming up tomorrow night at 8 o'clock. We will get into that conversation coming up at the 12 o'clock hour. Shockingly enough, I am in favor of the NHL considering a play-in tournament. I will explain that. Alex will crush me coming up in the 12 o'clock hour. Questions and answers, though, is coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe text now to 65780. It's PK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by James Carlton with State Farm. Have drivers under 25 on your insurance? Save hundreds of dollars a year with CarltonInsurance.net. Comfort Service X line for questions and answers. Let's start with this one from the 704. Hey guys, earlier today I heard BK say that he wanted the Cardinals to go after Carlos Rodon. Okay, so you're willing to pay him 25 to 30 million dollars for an injury prone starter who hasn't played much at all over the last three years, with the exception of last season. You're okay with paying him based on one season, really? I also believe that you are still believing in Tyler O'Neill based on one great season. So the question is, why are you okay with him, but you criticize the Cardinals when they give out or extend contracts based on one good year of great performance? So I think these are a few different things that kind of become conflated. Conflated? Is that a word? Yeah. I... I don't think that the Cardinals really do typically give out contract extensions based on one great year. If they did, they would have given Tyler O'Neill a contract extension last year and they decided against it. Now they did it in the past with like Paul DeYoung. That's one that immediately comes to mind. Miles Michaelis didn't work out so well. Michaelis was two years though, wasn't it? Or did he get one right after that? First year? Was it, it was after that first year, right? Oh, I was thinking it was the second. Um, but I, I actually think that the classification of Carlos Rodon here is a, a little unfair Carlos Rodon was really good in 2021. We got to remember that as well. He started 25 games for the White Sox, had 135 innings-ish, and finished with a 2.3 ERA. He was excellent. Yeah, he missed a few starts, but you kind of count on that in today's day and age. Like, if you end up getting to 25 starts, it's kind of a threshold of having a pretty solid season. So over the last two years, he's been pretty much what you expect a starter to be. So I, I would just disagree with that. I was... I was skeptical of him last offseason when we had these conversations. Alex, you were in on Carlos Rodon last year. I, I was not because I thought there was too much uncertainty in the Cardinals rotation. This year, I feel the opposite. This year, instead of needing that depth and that certainty in their rotation, I think they have enough of that. Now I think you're aiming for upside. It's almost like r- reversed in terms of what you're looking for. So that's that's why I'm interested in Carlos Rodon. We'll talk a little bit more about that coming up in the one o'clock hour uh, from the eight one six. Hey guys, let's say Kyler Murray ends up not being able to play next year. Do you think that will factor in at all to the Cardinals decisions this offseason with Cliff Kingsbury? I think you get rid of Cliff Kingsbury, no matter what. I mean, you've had, what is it now? Three seasons with Cliff as the head coach. I, I, like that. I mean, you've had what one good season with him. I just, I think you kind of, toss that one out and it benefits you if Kyler well it doesn't benefit you if Kyler's hurt but maybe if you get another coach in there and you got a top pick you can see what's available at the draft and then figure it out from there but I mean I'm moving on from my head coach no matter what because this is just this is a bad season 
I I think they may return with him because it's an interesting point that the texture brings up. I think you maybe bring Cliff back. And I think it's just because how appealing is your job if if your star quarterback is out for the whole year and you don't know what the quarterback situation is going to be like. Colt McCoy is a good serviceable backup, but they're probably looking at the free agent market this coming off season and are looking at like Baker Mayfield, uh, Jimmy Garoppolo, like finding somebody as a stopgap. I don't think that's appealing to a uh, head coaching candidate. So what I think they probably do is I could see them running it back with Cliff. And then when they go like three and whatever, 14, 14, they may just go, oh, yeah, it's time to move on from Cliff. Really, you just keep him there until the job becomes more appealing. And honestly, if Cliff's smart, he can probably read the tea leaves. If I'm Cliff, I would be looking to try and get the Mississippi State job from the unfortunate passing of Mike Leach. That's because he has he worked under Leach. He ran the same offense. Read the tea leaves. You know, your job's in jeopardy. I would jump back to the college game if I'm him. So I wonder if he's going to be next year what David Culley was to the Texans last year. (laughs) And what I mean by that is like David Culley was never the answer in Houston. Everybody knew it from the moment that he was hired. We all knew he was hired to be fired the following season. Why love you this year? (laughs) Exactly. Why? Because you knew it was a disaster. The, the the workplace environment, the roster, everything in place in Houston was an absolute disaster. It's kind of how you feel about the Arizona Cardinals right now. If you end up seeing that Kyler is unavailable until maybe it ends up being December, and by that point your season's over, there's no reason to risk him next year. The likelihood is he, he might not play next season. Yeah, you probably bring back Cliff Kingsbury because you don't want to put your head coach, your new head coach, where there's excitement, there's support, there's enthusiasm around him. If you end up going three and 14 under him in year one because of a backup quarterback being in there, you lose a lot of that. That grace period is now gone. Might as well run it back with Cliff and see what it looks like. And even if he does end up leaving, maybe what they do is their defensive defensive coordinator, Vance Joseph, has been a head coach in the past. The players seem to really like and respect him there. Maybe you hire him for a year. You give him a one year contract and you say, hey, we understand this is not a good situation. We get it, but we're going to compensate you accordingly. We're going to give you an opportunity here, kind of like what Steve Wilkes is doing right now in Carolina. We're going to hire you on what is essentially an interim basis. Would he accept the job? I don't know. Probably because it's one of 32. And if you do a good job in an interim basis, you could be for them what Bruce Arians was in Indianapolis, where he took over that one season for Chuck Pagano while Pagano was dealing with his cancer treatments. And he ended up getting a, a head coaching job out of that. So maybe it ends up working out for the best. By the way, maybe Bruce Arians is the guy that you give a call in Arizona. Say, hey, can you come fix this for us? Interesting. I didn't think of that. That would be a coach there in the past. And he had success there in the past, too. Uh, uh, he'd probably run Kyler out of town, though. I'm not sure Kyler is that the worst thing in the world. I'm not saying it's the worst thing in the world, but, you know, Kyler likes his video games. But maybe you just do it for a year, right? Where you're like, hey, Bruce, come in for a year. You're going to retire anyways. Come hang out. Have some fun. You can bring in whoever you want as the coaching staff, and we'll we'll, we'll rehash this next year whenever we get to start a new. Hell, if they're not careful, Tampa might try the same thing. (laughs) Touche. 65780 is the air comfort service text line from the 314 for questions and answers. Guys, what do you think is the bigger factor for the Cardinals to potentially change their model? Is it the harder schedule in the National League or the other National League contenders getting stronger and stronger? I think the two are kind of combined, but I would say the other National League contenders really going after it. See, I always feel like Mo never, or at least he verbally always states it doesn't matter. I think it would be more the schedule where you're seeing these guys more. Maybe you get a taste of the schedule this season and realize that, hey, we're going to be seeing all of these teams now. Uh, It's no more just the NL Central for a majority and then everyone else when it matches. I would feel like it's more the schedule becoming more difficult that they would say, all right, we need to maybe rethink our model here. 
I need to go in and look at like the numbers because I think Gould had brought this up in the past in one of his chats. Um, I'm not sure the schedule actually gets a whole. It gets tougher, but I don't think it's as tough as we make it sound because though you're losing some games against your division garbage cans and Pittsburgh and the Reds and, and the Cubs, you're also gaining some garbage cans from the American League. Like You're going to see only seven teams made the playoffs out of the American League. That means eight didn't. Um, so I think some of those games get kind of just replenished. Just real quick on that. That checks out. Yeah. So I, I think some of those games against the Pirates, Reds, and Cubs kind of just get replaced with bad American League teams. And you don't play anybody from the East and West more than you already did So in the NL. So I, I think if the Cardinals are going to change their spending or their model or whatever, I, I think it'd be because the NL is just taken off. I mean, you look at the West. We talked about this before some of these signings were done. A lot of these teams have their core in place for the next like five to ten years. And that's the Mets that are going to be loaded. The Braves will be loaded. The Phillies will be loaded. I mean, I know Miami's probably not making the playoffs, but they've got really good pitching still. Like, there's seven teams already, six teams already that are loaded. And if you're going to compete with them, I don't think you can just continue to kind of trend in a small trajectory of what your plan is for payroll to go up or how you view everything. I think you at some point have to just go, okay, it's time for us to really take that spike in our payroll and just go out there and try and compete with these teams. He's Alex Ferrario. That's Tanner Hendrickson, and I'm Brandon Kiley. 65780 is the air comfort service tax line to get involved in the show. We'll get into more likely to happen. You give us two, two scenarios. We'll tell you which one is more likely coming up at 1215. But next, the Fastlane had an interesting discussion yesterday on the Cardinals outfield situation. Should they be aiming for upside or certainty if they go out there and acquire a player? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. So I was listening to the fast lane yesterday, and I think you guys should be doing the same each weekday from two to six o'clock. And they had a really good discussion on the Cardinals outfield situation and what they should be seeking if they end up, you know, getting back into the free agent market and signing one of the players that could be available to them. Here's what they had to say. I want to react to this on the other side. I just wonder if that could end up being a fit. Again, what I'm looking for is I'm trying to think about think how they think and like, okay, we're not going to give out a five-year deal for somebody for a lot of money. Who could make an impact in this lineup on a one-year deal? And that guy tends to make the most sense for me. been talking about Joey Gallo for a while. On a one-year deal, somewhere around, somewhere in between 12 and $15 million, I'm there. I guess my question would be, Anthony, for that, what are you looking for? Like, what do you want out of that spot? Are right. you looking for upside or are you looking for consistency because right now in your outfield in all fairness your most consistent outfielder that you believe you're coming into 2023 with is Lars Newbar who you really don't know a ton about I would say consistency that's where I'm at as well and when they mentioned that guy that they were talking about on the front end I should have set this up better was Joey Gallo of do you go out there and acquire somebody such as Joey Gallo he's the high upside player that remains on the open market He hits like 200 or below on most seasons, but he has a really good eye. He takes a lot of walks and he hits for crazy amounts of power when he's right. He could hit 38 to 40 home runs this season and it shouldn't surprise anybody. I'm not particularly interested in Joey Gallo for the same reasons that I wasn't all that interested in Cody Bellinger. I'm not betting on upside this year. I have that baked in to your current roster. Tyler O'Neill at his best could be a better version of Joey Gallo. He hits for average and he hits for some power. 
Lars Newbar, no, he's probably not going to hit 40 home runs this season, but he could be a all-star caliber player if it ends up all going the way that you hope that it could. Nolan Gorman, he's your version of Joey Gallo. Like the best case scenario for Nolan Gorman this upcoming season is he just hits a bleep ton of home runs. He hits 30 home runs for you. hits probably like 230, and you leave him in the lineup because of that left-handed pop. And that's what you're signing Joey Gallo for. I don't want to become a team like they were in like the Brandon Moss year where they were like just all slug or nothing. That's not what I want from this team. I would like them to have a little bit more consistency. I'm not sure I think they need to go back out to the market for an outfielder if they don't trade one of these guys. But if they did go there... I would be much more interested in a guy like a Michael Brantley or a David Peralta than I would be somebody like a Joey Gallo for that upside. That's where I come back to my guy. And I, and I know it's not consistent because he was just injured, but I would say Michael Conforto is the guy that I'd be looking at in this spot because when healthy, which I think you're, of course, putting that caveat in there, but I think you're putting that in there with Michael Brantley as well. I mean, he's everything that you need. He can hit against righties. He's a lefty bat. He could play the outfield for you if you need to. And the consistency is there. And you probably, and I don't know what he's going to get. If he is going to get four years, I'm not getting in on that. But if you could get a one-year deal maybe with a Michael Conforto, he'd be the guy that I'd be looking at. But yeah, I'd be fine with it. And consistency is obviously the way to go there. But I still think there's a little bit of upside that I would want from that in terms of he's got the pop. He can be somebody, if healthy and right, to be a everyday outfielder for us rather than just a guy who is just going to be a bench bat. As, as a follow-up on that real quick, and Tanner, I know you've got another name that you want to bring up. But before you do, if, if you were presented the same one-year contracts, it's one year, like $15 million for Brantley and Conforto. Who would you rather have sign that one-year deal? Brantley and Conforto, both of them coming off of injury questions, both of them being a shoulder issue. Which one would you rather sign that contract with? I think I would go Conforto. Do I have to sign one? I don't know if I'd sign either, just because I have concerns. Let's with- assume that you you want an outfielder, and these are the two guys that you've target honed in on. Which one would you prefer to have? I think I would probably go with Brantley, just because I've seen Brantley deal with injuries in the past, and he's still – I don't think they've all been a shoulder issue, but – I've seen him be more of a consistent player in a longer stretch of his career than what Conforto is. I'm not sure if either guy's going to get back to being himself, but Conforto's just a smaller sample size prior to the shoulder injury compared to Brantley, so I'd probably say Brantley in that scenario. The thing that might lead me towards Conforto is I think Brantley at this point is exclusively a DH. Like If he were going to play for me next year, I think I would only be able to put him at DH, and I think Conforto can play in the outfield conceivably for me, so that might lead me more towards Conforto. But I think if you're just looking purely for a bat, I think Brantley's the better bat in terms of like his entire career. He has been a well above league average hitter and against right handed pitching specifically. The guy just absolutely mashes. He's been one of the best hitters in baseball against righties over the last few years. So I would probably lean towards Conforto, but I I would be interested in both players. And that is where you could get both consistency and upside out of one of those two guys. But realistically speaking, I, I think I would probably be out of the free agent market for the outfield. Tanner, who would you be looking at if you were looking for some of that consistency? If you're looking for consistency, I, I think you need to look at someone that's more of a longer term deal. And I'm not saying like a 10 year deal like Judge got because one, those guys don't exist. And two, I wouldn't give a 10 year contract to anybody that's left on the market. But I think it should be someone like Andrew Benintendi. 
probably going to commit a four-year deal to get him brought in. It's going to be a little pricey, and it's I think it's out of the Cardinals' price range in base of what the budget looks like already. But if you're going to add to the outfield, I think you add consistency by adding someone that's going to be there for four years. And, and for me, it comes down to the conversation we had, I think it was either early this week or last, late last week, of you know when you look at the outfield, you're trying to find those guys that you can definitely lock into place and say, I've got, like, for example, Jordan Walker. We know you've got Jordan Walker when he gets up to the big leagues and he finds his stride at the big league level. You know you've got him locked in place in one of the outfield spots, probably one of the corner outfield spots for the next six years. I think they need another one of those guys. I think right now when I look at the Cardinals, there's just too much inconsistency. And there is some high ceiling with guys like O'Neill, as you mentioned. Uh, I think Newpar, if he ends up hitting the stride that the Cardinals are predicting, his, his ceiling is going to be high. You said he could be a potential all-star if he hits his uh, ceiling. I, I think there's just too much risk in that and too much of unknowns that I think they uh, that they need another outfitter that provides some consistency that can be an everyday guy. And that's why I turned to Ben and Tenney. Bring him in on a four-year deal. And I know for the next four years, I've got left field locked up. It's going to be Andrew Ben and And then we can figure it out with the other guys in center and right until Walker is ready. When Walker's ready, he finds his stride in the big leagues. I know my corner outfield is set kind of like the corner infield is for the next four years of Walker, Ben and And all I got to do is find out center field. And, I, I don't think the Cardinals will do that, but I've said from day one when free agency started, my three needs for the Cardinals were I thought they needed an impact bat. They got that in Contreras. Well, they need a catcher, too. So they got they killed two of those off with that. They needed a consistent out, everyday outfielder, in my opinion, which they have not done, and I'm not sure they're going to do, and they needed bullpen arms. But if you're telling me you're going to go back in the outfield market, I would say go get Ben Benintendi, four-year deal, bring him in here, lock up one of your corner outfield spots. I would do the three-year contract that Mitch Haniger got for Ben Benintendi. Perfect. Anything more than that, I'm not sure that I'm all that interested in, just because I, I don't know what the real Andrew Benintendi is. This and past I, season... I was just, just to clarify, I was only throwing four years out there because I've seen that as projections sure. for him. And, and it seems reasonable. I mean, look at all the contracts that have been given out this year. If you just add like one or two years extra, <laughs> that's probably closer to what it's going to end up being. I, I probably wouldn't end up getting Andrew Benintendi because I'm a little lower on him than what I would guess the market is for a left-handed hitter with plus outfield defense. I just don't know what's real. Like last year, he was really good, but it was also a walk year and he finished the season getting hurt the year prior. He was basically a league average hitter. And the two years before that, he was terrible at the plate. So I I just don't know which version is real for Benintendi. And that would give me a little bit of pause to give him a four plus year contract. But if I can get him on the Mitch Haniger deal, that is something that I would at least have to look into because I I think he can be that guy that you put him out there. You know, he's going to start every day. And in a worst case scenario, you got a really good platoon outfielder. And I know you're paying 13, 14 million dollars for a platoon guy. That's the going right now, especially for a lefty that's going to start maybe 70% of the time for you. The other thing that I did want to bring up, because I think a lot of people are going to bring up the Brian Reynolds and the trade options. Guys, I was reading a piece over at The Athletic earlier today. It was not about the Cardinals. This was coming from a Red Sox reporter. And they basically were asked, hey, what is the pivot now? You missed out on Correa. You missed out on all of the top end shortstops. Now what? And they said they might consider pivoting to the trade market. Here's what it reads in this piece. Among the other notable names generating trade speculation includes Pirates center fielder Brian Reynolds, another player who could fit the Red Sox. But the Pirates asking price is said to be sky high. The trade market for shortstop seems less robust, or at least it's generating less attention. Could the Guardians trade Ahmed Rosario? Is Paul DeYoung a worthwhile target from the Cardinals? He's great. He's awesome. Former All-Star. 30 home runs in a season. Yeah. If the Red Sox are serious about taking on the deal, I will take a Xander Bogart signed rookie card. Like, I'm good. 
That, that'll do it for me. Just open up that money and let's go ahead and go get Carlos Rodon. Like, let, let's trade them Paul DeYoung in a salary dump. You open up $10 million there. You trade Jordan Montgomery afterwards. Maybe you end up getting a left-handed bat in that deal. And then you end up signing Carlos Rodon. And you're exactly like, because you opened up $10 million from DeYoung. You opened up $10 million from the Jordan Montgomery deal. Now you've got $20 million that's been added to your payroll flexibility on top of the $10 million already there. Boom, that's your $30 million. That's how you end up getting to a Carlos Rodon type of signing. I know you guys are concerned about the injury history. I get it. It is totally fair. There's a lot of risk there. But if you could trade Paul DeYoung, let's do it. That sounds great to me. I can't believe there's a real team that might be interested in it. That screams desperation. But hey, if somebody's desperate and they need something, why not take a shot at it? It opens up the money, and it opens. It doesn't just open up the money this year. It opens up the money next year also, so you can be a little bit more aggressive. So yeah, if if Boston's interested, they got to have something that you can say, oh yeah, just give us a minor league player or a player to be named later. We'll take that and enjoy uh, the shortstop. I bet 100 bucks Mo called Boston this morning. He read this article and, wait 100%. a minute, they're interested in Paul DeYoung? Oh my gosh, get me Bloom on the phone. Hi, Bloom. If he made that deal, oh, he, he's already he public enemy number one. He, should, he makes that deal for Paul DeYoung. He should be fired on the spot. Can you imagine if you're a Red Sox fan today? We lost Xander Bogarts because you guys lowballed him for two years. We might end up losing Rafael Devers for the exact same reason. Trevor Story as the replacement for Bogarts, who's on a contract that doesn't look that great right now. You traded your best player, one of the five best players in the sport, in Mookie Betts, because, again, you weren't willing to give him a market value deal. And, oh, by the way, we're in one of the top ten markets in the country. We're the Boston bleeping Red Sox. And this is the way that we're operating? Dude, if they lose Rafael Devers, they have zero star power on that team. Zero. They have nothing left. They have barely anything right now. Oh, I mean, I mean the, their the most recognizable their name would be their manager at that point in time. Yeah. Who's the second most recognizable guy out on their team right now besides Devers? Sale, probably. Oh, yeah, oh I forgot about Sale. But See, he, I, I mean, that's the injured. thing is like I he's was barely thinking, playing. The name I was thinking was Jansen. Sure. Like Jansen arguably is the second highest profile name on that team. And I think Story took a bit of a hit from his bad season there. And then Sales kind of lost that because of the injuries that have happened. And, like, I don't think they're bringing back Evaldi. It sounds like Evaldi's going to be walking, too. Like, I look at that team, I go, it's Devers and then who? And it's, it's your second biggest name's a closer? Mm. Kike Hernandez because of his playoff moments. But he's not, like, a, a superstar player. Yeah. He's just recognizable because he's had big moments in big games. But that's it. I mean, it's it's bad, man. You, you think the, the Cardinals – we think that the Cardinals are quote-unquote cheap. I got something else to tell you about the Boston Red Sox. Coming up in 15 minutes, we talked about this with Chris Kerber. Should the NHL consider adding a play-in tournament? My co-hosts are very against the idea. I'll try to make the argument in favor of it. We'll do that coming up at 1230. More likely to happen is coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. What's more likely to happen? They'll figure it out. BK and Ferrario's most likely to happen. Six five seven eight zero is the air comfort service text line for more likely to happen. You give us two scenarios. We'll tell you which one's more likely. Let's start with this one from the three one four guys. More likely the Cardinals sign a top tier reliever or just any starter that remains on the open market top tier reliever or another starter on the open market. 
Uh, I'll say more likely that they sign a top tier reliever because I think that's what they're viewing as the biggest need. I think with most comments saying they've got six guys that can man the rotation for them and then the depth, I think they're going to be looking at finding somebody who can be in that bullpen as a high end reliever. I don't think I agree that I think it's going to be the high end reliever because if they're truly in on Rodon and they miss out on him, I can't see anybody else that they would have much interest in bringing into this rotation because we've got five guys already locked into place that are going to be your one through five. And we've talked about this guy's like, I know he's signed now, but Chris Bassett, for example, he, he fit in the category of like a miles, Michael, Storm Montgomery. Mm-hmm. you have those guys. So you don't need to go bring in another one. We already have your rotation filled out. So I think it's more likely they get a high end reliever. Would you guys consider the guys that we talked about yesterday to be high end relievers like Corey Knable, uh, Matt Moore, who we've talked about in the past, Craig Kimbrell, Lugo, Ottavino, those guys all fit into that category. I think so. Uh, I think all those guys, but Lugo. I don't know if I'd really call Lugo a high leverage arm. I know he's kind of done that in the past. I think but they he's kind of a, him as a high leverage. High leverage, though, they're going to yeah. view him as somebody who's coming in to play with Hicks, Gallegos, and Helsley. They, they might view him that way, but I don't know if like the average fan, fan will view him that way. If we consider all of those guys to be in that category, then yes, I think it's more likely the reliever than the starter. I would rather them, as I've said all day, though, go the Carlos Rodon route. Uh, from the three-one-four guys, more likely. Correa or Bogarts lives up to their respective new contracts. Which one is more likely to live up to their contracts? Correa or Bogarts? I'll start. I think Correa is going to end up being the best deal of the offseason. I, I have a ton of confidence in him being excellent for at least the next eight years. I understand he got a 13-year contract, and so that changes a little bit of the calculus on this. That last five years, the way that the Giants are going to be looking at this, especially as a big market team that can continue adding salaries around him, they're going to look at it and say, we got eight excellent years out of a legitimate premier shortstop. The last five years, whatever we get is gravy. I remember talking to David Sampson, former president from the Miami Marlins. We talked to him about the Albert Pujols situation where the Marlins were in on Albert. They said they only wanted five years. Give us five good years at the front end of that deal, and we'll eat the second half of the deal. They didn't even care about it. It was just thrown on there to be able to make the AAV cheaper in the first five. That's what I think is basically happening with these deals. I think if you're looking at Bogarts versus Correa, I would much rather have Correa. Yeah, I I think actually Xander Bogarts is probably going to be deemed a little bit more successful just because I think when you put him on that team, it's an asset offensively that is just going to upgrade their already deep offense. And I think it makes them a more dangerous team. And I think you'll be looking at San Diego and saying, damn, that is a really good team. And Xander Bogarts is going to be a piece of it. So I think by the end of that contract, I think you'd be looking at Xander Bogarts as a success. I think I would link Correa because I think he was the best all around free agent in this class. And, and to be case point, I think 10 of the 13 years are going to be good years with San Francisco. I am interested to know what his numbers will look like going to a really big hitters park. Uh, but I, I don't think they'll have that much of a drastic decline on all of his offensive numbers. And I I just don't I, – I think Bogarts could end up being the deal that you look back on and go, man, that was the bust of the offseason. Like, he screams not based on his – not what he'll probably do in the first, like, two, three years of that contract. But I think once he moves off of shortstop, the value already starts to come down. And then it just comes down to will his bat carry him. And I don't know as he ages. So I, I think the Bogart still has the chance to be the bust of the offseason. When we look back on it, I think Cray has the ch- better chance to be the best all-around signing. I agree with you. 65780 is the air comfort service text line from the 314. More likely the Blues make the playoffs this season or the Cardinals offseason is done and they don't sign anybody else from free agency. Blues make the playoffs. Cardinals don't sign anybody else. This is easy, guys. 
Cardinals don't sign anybody else. <laughs> I'm not sure the Blues are a playoff team. Expanded or not. Well, they're not going to be able to expand them before April. Damn. I actually <laughs> we really got uh, no chance. I actually think I would probably sign side more on the Blues making the playoffs because, I mean, you just kind of you float around there, and sooner or later I think you might fall into it if you continue to play well. I, I also don't believe the Cardinals are done, so I, I'm going to say it's more likely that the um, that the Blues make the playoffs. I think it's more likely the Cardinals are done. I... I don't think it should shock anybody if this is the 26-man roster they go into the season with. And honestly, I, I don't think it's a bad team. I know earlier today and all day long, we've been talking a lot about Carlos Rodon and what he could mean for them and how it improves their rotation. If they went into the season with Jack Flaherty as their number one, I would get it. I could see how you talk yourself into that. And you say, hey, if Jack's healthy, he can be one of the premier starters in Major League Baseball. I think there's a lot of truth to that. And then if you have a number two of Miles Michael is healthy, if you have number three, you're probably looking at Montgomery. He was excellent for them last year. Your rotation makes sense. And I think their offense is honestly underrated locally. I think that it's going to be a really good offense for them. So I could see them going into the season as constructed. I, I'd be pretty shocked at this point if the Blues are a playoff team. Uh, 65780 is the air comfort service text line for more likely to happen. Guys, more likely to happen. The Cardinals end up signing Matt Carpenter or the Cardinals end up signing Joey Gallo. Which former Yankee are the Cardinals more likely to sign? Carpenter or Gallo? It would be Gallo. I think they look how long it took them to make the decision that they did with Matt Carpenter. I don't think they would just a year later be like, all right, you know what? Let's, uh, Let's bring Carpenter back. I I think they've turned the page on that, and it wouldn't surprise me if Joey Gallo was the option for them. I think I agree. I think I agree with you there. I I think it'd be more likely Gallo, just because the Carpenter one is still fresh in our mind and how it ended the first time. And I think it looks, it would be a cool story if you know you bring back Carpenter, you kind of go through the same treatment that Albert got, where it's a future Cardinals Hall of Famer comes back, plays one final year with the birds on the bat, has a really good year, and then calls it a career. Just assuming that this will be his final year. He may play longer than that. But if you bring him back and it goes poorly again, and then you just move on a year after, it just looks just bad in my opinion. What kind of contracts do you guys think Gallo's going to get? Do you think he gets something resembling what Bellinger got? I think it's like, what did Bellinger get? Like 17? I think it's like 1 in 10. 1 in 10 with probably some bonuses in yeah, there. I'd say like 1 in I saw, 12, I saw today uh, that Bellinger's deal is a little less um, in terms of base salary, because apparently there's an option on the back end of it, a mutual option for like $25 million. And if he gets a comeback player of the year, talk about really banking on yourself, he gets like, I think it was a million dollar bonus. I think Robert Murray had that, if I remember correctly. Okay, so it's a $12 million salary with a $5.5 million buyout. That's what it was. Okay, yeah. So if they buy him out next year, he'll make $5.5 million for him. So $12 million in terms of salary this season. So let's say it's a $12 million salary. I don't think the Cardinals are signing that for for Gallo. What do you think Matt Carpenter gets? Like three? With some sort of incentives? I think he'd get up to five. I mean, just that's how the left-handed market's moving. I think that's more likely. <laughs> like, I, I, I understand every, everything you guys said about them potentially bringing him back and then letting it... I, I get it. It, it looks kind of weird. But I just by salary, I think it's more likely that they would be shopping in the Matt Carpenter aisle than it is that they would be shopping in the Joey Gallo aisle. Especially when they're banking on all this upside from their current outfield. So... I think it's much more likely that they go the Matt Carpenter route. Right, wrong, or indifferent? I think that's the more likely scenario. Oh, don't scenario. do either. 
Coming up in 15 minutes, we are getting into the junk drawer. And at 1 o'clock, I always like catching up with our friend Mike Farron. He's the host for MLB Network Radio. A couple of years ago, I'll always remember the conversation we had with him where he said, it always feels to him as if the Cardinals are one player short. They go all the way up to that line, and then they just don't quite cross it. Are they there again with their starting rotation? We'll ask Mike Farron about that coming up at 1 o'clock. But next, the NHL once again talking about a play-in tournament. Should they do it? Talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. If we're rethinking the postseason, boys, then we should be thinking about playing games. There's absolutely no reason why the NHL should not end its postseason field. Half the league doesn't qualify for the playoffs. I know people point to other sports like baseball and say, well, they only let a certain percentage of teams in. Well, they're not the NHL. And the NHL's money time, the time when the casual fans start paying attention to hockey, ain't in the 82 games leading up to the playoffs. It's in the playoffs. The Stanley Cup itself is the single most famous thing about the NHL. And so we should invite as many teams as we can to that party. That was Greg Wyshynski when we talked about this the last time, right before the playoffs last year with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. The conversation is coming back up. Should the NHL adopt a play-in tournament? Pierre Lebrun wrote about this earlier today. He said the following, quote, I did an informal poll of governors over two and a half days. The question was simple. Do you favor the idea of a play-in before the Stanley Cup playoffs? Of the 12 governors that I asked, all 12 were in favor of the NHL adding a play-in round. I couldn't find a single voice of dissent. Bettman, though, remained steadfast against the idea. He has been very consistent over the years with that notion. It has been it is absolutely the right time, in LeBron's opinion, to start focusing on the merits of a play-in tournament. The most talked about concept would be a 7 versus a 10 and 8 versus 9 in each conference in a best-of-three series, which would be held quickly over three days max right after the season. There would be no travel. The higher seed gets to host the entirety of that series. That is what, according to LeBron, most of the people around the league would like to see. End quote. All of that coming from Pierre LeBron over on The Athletic. Now, some disclaimers. He asked owners whether or not they would like to add an extra three games, really an extra 12 games potentially, of playoff revenue. Of course the owners are going to be in favor of that. That makes sense because it is in their own personal interest to add more revenue to the pot because then their teams can make a little bit more money potentially. So I get why owners would be in favor of this. I'm a little surprised, frankly, that Gary Bettman is not in favor of this. And he has been, like Pierre Lebrun said, steadfast against it. That being said, if this continues to grow louder and louder among the governors of, hey, we think that this is the right decision, eventually Bettman works for the owners. He's probably going to be swayed. So here's what it would have looked like as an example a year ago. Pittsburgh and Washington ended up being the seven and the eight seed in the West. The teams that they would have played in this play in tournament would have been the Islanders and the Columbus Blue Jackets. Now, this is probably a point against what I think. The Islanders and the Columbus Blue Jackets were 16 and 19 points back, respectively, in the Eastern Conference. Did they deserve to play an extra three games? Maybe not. In the Western Conference, it was a little different. The seven and eight seed were Dallas and Nashville. 
they would have faced off against, for example, Vegas and Vancouver. Those were the 9-10 seeds in the West. Vegas was just three points back. Vancouver was five points back. And Winnipeg was eight points back. So they also would have been in the conversation later in the season. Here's why I'm in favor of it. Because if you're a team like Vegas, Vancouver, Winnipeg, if you're a fan of one of those three teams, the rest of the regular season suddenly becomes meaningful. If you're a fan of one of those three teams or the Islanders or Columbus, for example, and you get to the trade deadline midway through the season, you feel like you've got a lot more hope than if there's only eight spots available in your respective conference. I think this kind of applies this year, frankly, in St. Louis. If you're the Blues, now I don't know how Army would approach this, but you have a much better chance of getting in in a scenario where there are potentially 10 teams that get in than you do if there's only eight. Just by math, you, you, there are more spots available. The threshold to get in is much lower for you. That makes me more interested in the Blues throughout the rest of the regular season if I'm a fan here in St. Louis. So I like it. I like the idea of adding a couple of extra games. I don't think it dilutes the product. If you're a seven or an eight seed, you should have been better to avoid playing in that tournament. I think it then artificially in some ways boosts the reward for teams that end up in the top six of their uh, respective conferences. So I, I like this. I think it is a route that not only should the, should the NHL consider, I would be in favor of them adopting something like this. We've seen it work very well in the NBA thus far. I think the NHL should consider something similar. I hate this. I hate all of this. And I said this when Greg Wyshynski brought it up last year. I do think it dilutes the product. I, I mean, what you just said, of if you were the 7-8 team, you should have played better and not been in this position. Well, if you're a 9-10 seed, you should have played better so you weren't in this position. I, 16 teams, I think, is plenty when it comes to the postseason play, if we're talking 18, 20 teams that are going to be fighting for playoff spots, you know how awful it would have been to have to watch Columbus to try and fight in a playoff game last season. I just then think don't watch it. Well, then don't put the, don't put the product in front of me. But Columbus fans would have watched it. Columbus fans were out on it at that time. I, mean, I, don't, I wonder what percentage of Blues fans would watch if they got in this year. Like that would I, be in. I don't. Know. I would have. I would have no interest in watching the Blues general, in a play-in tournament. General managers in that position think like Doug Armstrong thinks. We're we're not a playoff team. I don't think all do, especially if you're a team that has not made the playoffs in recent years. Like if you're somebody that is instead of the blues, the blues are a tough call on this because they have had so much recent success. But you you think Yarmo Kekalainen last season, 16 teams out of the playoffs at the time is going to sit there and say, you know what? Let's trade some draft picks in the next couple of years so we can get three points. I've got got a good example of this. The Buffalo Sabres this year, they're probably not going to end up making the playoffs. But if there was 10 teams that made it from the East, they are very much in the fight right now to be able to beat one of those 10 teams. Do they consider going a little bit more, not all in, but do they consider adding at the deadline if you've got 10, 10 openings for the playoffs? Maybe, because it's been so long since they've had any sort of real playoff success. I think it really just depends on what kind of a team you are, what your recent history is, and what your trajectory is as an organization. The Blues are almost the opposite of that. Where if you're Doug Armstrong, does it matter if you get into the, the play-in? No, probably not, because that would represent a clear step back from where you have been over the last decade. There are a lot of other teams, though, that it would have been the opposite. Hell, the Vegas Golden Knights last year... I understand that everybody in St. Louis hated the way that they treated the regular season all for real reasons. I get it. But if you were the Vegas Golden Knights and you could potentially get into the playoffs with a lot of guys that were on LTIR that now could come back and be healthy for you, quote unquote, that would have been a team that would have been super interesting in the playoffs from a national or a Vegas perspective. So for me, 
I, I think that it makes a lot of sense. And I do think that it involves more fan bases over the course of the regular season. And it makes the last couple of months of the season more meaningful for more markets. And the that's what the NHL is looking for. couple of months of the for. season are fun, though, no matter what, because there are teams here, that are on the no, are. around the NHL is like there's teams that are five, six points out of a playoff spot like last season. Take it for example, the teams that were sitting outside of the playoff spots, the New York Islanders, like they were three, six and one in their last 10 games before you were fighting for a playoff spot. Like they also traded. They, they also traded some of their, their players because they were so far out. But what if a, there was a playoff spot to be had there, do they consider not but trading I, I, I think you shouldn't be rewarded for being yeah. put into the playoffs if you can't even crack the top 50% of your league. What I'm saying like, is... That's ridiculous. It might be. Like, I'm, you mentioned the NBA play-in tournament. Dumb, by the way, too. Uh, the Pelicans don't think awarded, so. That was a big part. And the Suns as well. The Suns, part of their success was because they, they got into the play-in tournament. Some of their young players got that experience. And they were able to then take the next step. The Pelicans, same thing. Right now, they're the number one team in the Western Conference. And a couple of years ago, they were a team that had that that play in success. I, I do think there's value. Once again, though, I, I don't think you should be rewarded for sitting in the honestly the bottom part of your your even your conference for that example. Like last year. Spurs got in 14 games below 500 in a in a play-in tournament, which is the playoffs. And then they Let's were done. Talk, and then they were done. I know, but they shouldn't even get that opportunity. That's so, a waste of time, in my opinion. And I we, get you'll argue with, well, a fan base should be excited. You shouldn't be excited. Your, your team's 14 games below 500. Just admit it. You're not good. We saw this. You shouldn't in, be in rewarded for we that. We saw this in the bubble play, guys. That like, was teams, totally different, It wasn't, though. though. It was letting a bunch of more teams than should have been in to the postseason. And it bubble wasn't in enjoyable. general was terrible. Look, it wasn't enjoyable when you're adding all of these teams into the postseason. It dilutes the product. It is already the toughest trophy to win in pro sports and to sit there and say well now we're going to add 12 more games into it for teams that probably shouldn't be even in it we're talking about yeah you know what what if the what if this team bounces the team that should be in the playoffs great but then they're probably going to get bounced out in the next round i just maybe not because we know the nhl that that's the league where you do get some of these upsets it takes away from the product from what we've seen and it's been this way forever if you look around pro sports you know 12 teams get in in uh major league baseball or no that was it was one of the two 12 out of the 30 teams get in like You've already got half of the league that makes it into the postseason to get to the point where now we're going to 20 teams. And the next thing you know, it's going to be, well, let's add two more into this one. It just takes away from what the NHL has always been about. And and last year, the Eastern Conference, that was just a one-off on how much separation there was between the eight and the nine when the season came to an end. Because I remember at one point it was like 18 points or something crazy. I went back and I'm looking at the standings from March 1st because that's the point where Pierre LeBron references in his article, if I remember correctly, as March 1st. Oh, you know, this would provide more meaningful hockey. There was a crap ton of meaningful hockey to be played from Mm -hmm. March 1st last year. I'm looking at it from March 1st, looking at that last wild card spot. There were one, two, three, four, five teams in a or four teams, excuse me, within four points of that last wild card spot. They shouldn't get to just be handed in. And I understand, well, you know, if you hand in those two, these teams were close. If if you can't get into the playoffs of a league that allows 50 percent in through 82 games, you don't belong. And and that's why that's why I don't want to reward teams to just be handed into the spot where it's, you know, oh you were below 500. You get a chance to be in the playoffs and rewarded playoff revenue money. You don't deserve that. You have to be willing to be able to not only be willing to, but also be good enough to build a team that gets you in there. And if they lose regular season, the 82 games now. There's times where some of these games don't matter a whole lot. Like it's tough to look at tomorrow's game against the Edmonton Oilers, not so much in the Blues' perspective, but you know if Pittsburgh's playing the Devils tomorrow, just for example. I don't know if they are, but 
it's tough to look at that game and go, okay, that has meaning down the road. But that's the same way either way. Whether you have the twelve, it deludes it more if it's if it's twenty teams out of thirty two that you are already getting get, in. You I mean, already regular, get season's already pretty. You already get entertaining NHL. hockey going into the final month of the season because there are a lot of teams jockeying for position. Look, the Vancouver Canucks last year missed out on the playoffs by five points, but they played six two and two in their last ten games. That created excitement. Could Vancouver get in? Nashville was four four and two as that bottom wild card spot in the last ten. The excitement's there. I don't want to sit here and have to say, oh, can San Jose get in in the final 10 games of the season when they're sitting at 32, 37, and 13, but they're fighting with Vancouver to get one of those bottom wildcard spots. Yeah, I, 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 I think what we do need to come to terms with is the fact that if there's 12 governors that are already in, interested in this and they all say, yeah, I'm, I'm wanting it, like whether you guys like it or not, this is probably going to happen in the not too distant future. And the only reason it hasn't happened yet is because of how steadfast Gary Bettman has been Gary against Bettman's it. Gary Bettman's my favorite. Gary Bettman ain't going anywhere either for a while. Uh, Gary Love Bettman works for the governors. He's been steadfast they, on this, though, for about 15 years. And they are his boss. If they want it, guess what he has to do? Change his but mind. They want it right now, and he's telling them it's not happening. They're not as interested in it yet as they apparently need to be before it becomes something that they are going to fight for. Pierre Lebrun, if you read the article, was very clear. If this ends up getting to the executive committee and they start telling Gary Bettman that it's something that they want, it will get done. I can guarantee you I'm not watching the play-in tournament. That's fine. You don't have to. That That's the thing that's great about all of this is if you don't like it, don't watch. There ain't nothing wrong with that. That's okay. It's not for, like, if the... Predators in the Flames end up playing in a play-in game. It's not for us here in St. Louis. That's for Calgary and Nashville. Those fans are going to be watching that play-in game. So I I will be very curious to see where this ends up going. I, I don't think it's imminent. I don't think this is something that like within the next year or two we're for sure going to see. But in the not-too-distant future, it sure seems like this is something that the NHL is going to go towards. I will be curious to see if it also coincides with other changes to the playoffs. One thing that I do think they should do is the reseeding, for example. One like, I, I think we're all in favor of that. And that's something that makes a lot of sense that maybe when they do this, this restructure, they also try to do something else with the format of the playoffs. I love the Stanley Cup playoffs. I think they're great as is. I think this makes it more interesting for more different fan bases. That's the only way that I would look at it. Coming up in 10 minutes, we're talking to Mike Fair and baseball analyst and host for MLB Network Radio. But next, let's dive into the junk drawer here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Together Credit Union. Pay yourself with every purchase. Open and achieve a checking account today. Junk George Tanner, what do you got for us today? So yesterday we did something on baseball reference, most looked up players. Today, some of the most, uh, some food trends that happened over the 2022 year on Uber Eats. Oh. What do you think the most, you know how like when you make an order online, there's always the like special instructions. What do you think kind of the uh, special instruction was for this year in Uber Eats. Like the delivery sense. instructions when they drop something yeah, or, off, or like, like tell them to do something? Not, not like put it at the like, front door, put it off to the like, side. You know, I don't want this on my burger or oh, I, so want, like order I want extra this on my burger. Order instructions, yeah. Uh, Number one trend. No idea. I couldn't uh, even yeah. come up with a guess for that. I, I, no say, I don't even know. Extra toppings, but maybe I don't, I don't even know. No damn onions. We don't want those things. Those things are nasty. 
That was the number one trend across Uber Eats this year was that the special instruction, no onions. Do we have any other trends on there? I can get on board uh, with that. So onions was the main trend there. Another one of that alcohol sales on Uber Eats was down 300%. Compared um, to the pandemic, that makes sense because yeah. people can actually go to bars now. <laughs> uh, the late night snackers, the uh, the late night munchies. <laughs> number what, one is Taco Bell. No, no, no. What colleges do you think was up on top of that Ooh. list? Kind of sad. Ohio hint, State, Colorado. No, no. Hint: Midwest or kind of Big Ten countries where three of the four were. Illinois. Ohio State wasn't up there. Nope. It's U a of I University was third. So Illinois was. Illinois was third. Wisconsin. Mm, no. Michigan. Tech, no. Texas A&M was four. Oh, huge, huge campus. And top two are in the Big Ten. One Iowa? in the Big Ten. Well, Iowa was number two. And the other one, Happy Valley. They get the munchies up there because that was the number one place for the late night munchies. Really, not a whole lot going on, I guess. So they figure they need to. And then get the some o- food. The other one, the, there was a big decline in ranch dressing uh, requests oh, that's sad on for Uber everyone. Eats. It's now that disgusting. One, it's good. Uh, and then some fun pairings. Most popular food, uh, even though I said alcohol was down. Food and alcohol pairings on Uber Eats: steak and margaritas. Pizza in a white steak claw. Steak and a margarita? I yeah. could never. Where are you ordering like steak combo. and margarita from? I couldn't fathom I'm, the I'm idea I'm thinking of... it's two orders. I think it's get your steak here and Who go Uber get a margarita elsewhere. Steaks? That's a fair question, like, too. Well, you want your steak delivered? Yeah, yeah. That's, no. that's, that's, that's like also, are you ordering fries? steak from, like, the, the Mexican spot down the street? Is that where you're getting yours? I mean, I wh- whatever, more power to you. But, but again, like, ugh. Other combinations that were popular, pizza and White Claw hard seltzers. What? That feels like Alex's kind of nah. MO. Cactus limes. Burritos and margaritas. Like, that, that one makes, makes sense. sense. That, that is the first one that makes 100% sense to me. Chicken and uh, sangria. And then I can see that. Wings and beer. Were the I think that was the fifth one on the list. I, I will Those nev- last few make a lot of sense to me. The I first will, couple are no. shocking. I will never understand somebody Uber eating steak and saying, just drop it on my front porch and I'll eat it. By the way, Texas A&M is the biggest enrollment in all of America. Did you know that Illinois is sixth on that list for enrollment in 2022? That explains at least partially why they're why they're up there. Another trend too that happened this past year on Fridays, foodies were most likely to order spicy food and cannolis, which cannolis get you some of those cannolis. That doesn't sound like a Friday thing to me. Spicy food doesn't really match with cannolis. Apparently, Saturdays were days where sour cream was the big no. People don't want sour cream on a Saturday, (laughs) but yet they wanted extra sauce on Sundays. I guess that makes sense. It's probably because like spike and like wings would be my guess. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. How Those often your... do you put sour cream on things or use sour cream? Oh, I hate sour I'm, cream. You know it's I'm not about to eat sour cream. Jalopinous. Jalopinous. <laughs> Jalopinous. <laughs> Whatever. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up in about 30 minutes or so, if you could add one free agent to the St. Louis Cardinals that remains in the offseason, who would it be? We'll get to that coming up at 1.30. We're talking a little bit about that with Mike Farron of MLB Network Radio next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. And anytime we get a chance to catch up with our friend and a host for MLB Network Radio, Mike Farron, we love to do so via the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line. Mike, we appreciate the time as always, man. How you doing today? 
I'm great. How are you guys? Uh, we're doing very well. So we got some big time news last night in Major League Baseball with Carlos Correa officially ending his free agency. He gets a 13 year deal. We've seen a lot of these, Mike, the the long extended deals compared to what we expected. What has been your biggest takeaway thus far on like a, a big picture sense from what we've seen across Major League Baseball this free agency uh, season? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a couple things. I think you know, one, I think it speaks to the overall health of where baseball is um, as a game. That that you know, coming out of two years of, of real uncertainty um, and reduced revenues from COVID, we're right back where we were in 2019 and a little bit higher, even what with new television deals that have kicked in and new CBA, so so labor piece for the next five years and all of those factors in it. So I think that that's the number one thing. I mean, the next is that I think prices were a little bit higher than I anticipated. Most of us anticipated this winter, um, probably by about 50% in a lot of cases. Although I think if you had said Carlos Correa was going to get close to $350 million in free agency, I don't think that would have been a shock necessarily. Um, and I think the, the, the other one is that I think it's interesting that teams who for years issued the long-term, you know, 10 plus year contract. Um, and, and really like that really didn't exist very frequently in major league baseball circles outside of a couple of, uh, of deals, you know, over the course of, of, you know, any of the 50, nearly 50 years of free agency, um, that teams are more willing to do that if it reduces their number for the competitive balance tax, um, in being able to spread that money out. And so I think, you know, these 11, 12, 13 year deals, are less about the aging curves and concerns about guys performing in their late thirties, um, you know, into age 40. I think that most teams are pretty well aware that after 35 or 36, that there's going to be a fairly steep decline in production, but it just takes a chance to spread out the money. And when you're playing a, a dollar per win game, which is what they generally have with wins above replacement, um, you know, if you're, you're spending $280 million for six years of production, let's say of, of Xander Bogart's, that probably lines up pretty well with the production that you're going to get and how much you paid. So I think all of those things are factors. I think that's all played out. And that's kind of been my main takeaway from this winter is that, um, you know, we're, we're pretty, we're in a pretty healthy spot and that there's a number of teams that are, are excited about trying to improve their club to win in 2023. So with that being said, Mike, are, are you surprised that Wilson Contreras got the deal that he did by St. Louis? I think I'm more surprised that it was St. Louis that gave it to him than I am that he got that deal. I mean, he was clearly the best offensive catcher on the market. And I think, um, you know, really with the exception of Real Muto's free contract that he signed with the Phillies, um, this is, I believe, the highest one that's been given to, to a catcher all time, right? So I think the bigger thing that was, it was interesting to me was in listening to the Cardinals talk about how they were trying to, I guess, assuage some of the fears about, about the defensive shortcomings that Contreras has had. Um, statistically, he's not always been the best receiver. He's got a cannon arm. Uh, and there have been some questions about whether or not he is an effective game caller. And coming from Gaudier Molina to that, I'm a little bit surprised, I think, that they took someone where uh, that they were willing to go to that level in the market for someone where that was a concern, right? Especially when they have as deep a farm system as they have and could have um, you know, perhaps acquiesce to some of the demands of Oakland to make a deal for Sean Murphy. So I guess from that standpoint, I think it's a little bit of a surprise for me personally. At the same time, the Cardinals upgraded their offense significantly by adding Contreras to the mix. 
Um, and, you know, when you have balance and what, what they seem like are, are pretty bullish on performances of guys like Lars Nupar and, um, and Brendan Donovan, and there's probably still a little bit of room for growth from Dylan Carlson from the left side of the plate. Like, those things are pretty interesting overall, and definitely their lineup is, is far more stout I'm uh, going into next year than it was coming into the 2022 season. Mike Farron is our guest. You can hear him over on MLB Network Radio. You can follow him on Twitter at Mike underscore Farron. Mike, I always reference, or I, 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 a lot of the time, I reference one of the quotes that you gave us on the show. I think it was a couple of years ago now. And we were talking going into a season about how the Cardinals always seem to go up to that line and then they could use one more thing to put them over it, right. and they just don't do it for whatever reason. I almost feel like they're doing that again this offseason because when you look at this team, it's really well-constructed. The The lineup is very deep. They've got some young players that have upside that could really help them. You look at the bullpen, and while it's maybe not perfect, they, they've got pieces that you could squint and say, okay, I, I kind of see how that comes together. The thing they're missing appears to be a legitimate front-end starter. And, oh, by the way, Carlos Rodon is out there, who happens to be exactly that. How do you feel about the Cardinals roster right now, and does it fit to that criteria that you talked about previously? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question. And I think when you, like, let's take that rotation part a step further, right? And Derek Gould had a great piece a couple days ago talking about the Cardinals uh, rotation and how there's really only one player that's under contract for next year um, in Steven Matz, right? So you're looking at the, they've got four four starters who are going to be free agents after the year, and I really do feel like they need a little bit more swing and miss in their rotation. They were down towards the bottom of the league in strikeout rate, and so um, yeah, it feels like they're maybe a little bit short in that regard. Um, you know, I know John Mazalak kind of threw some cold water over some of it. They're linking to the big names that are on the free agent market the, the other day in an interview. And so I'm not sure how much they're actually in on Rodon, but the difference I think is that they have a chance for some internal improvement in that regard. If Jack Flaherty is healthy. And I realize that's been a big if the last two seasons, but there are few guys who are available either in free agency or via trade ever that are as talented as Jack Flaherty is. And if Flaherty is healthy and he's walking into his platform year heading into free agency, so that's a guy that can pitch at the top of the rotation. He's got the stuff to be a game one playoff starter. So I think that changes it a little bit. I mean, I think there's some uncertainty in the lineup, right? Like we don't really know what Tyler O'Neill is. I know he had the big year two years ago, but I think there's some questions there. We don't really know what Carlson is. We don't really know if, there's a position for Nolan Gorman. We know that there were two great months from Lars Newtbar last year. Like, is he is he really a regular? Is he more of a role player? You know, Brendan Donovan with the Gold Glove for utility guys, but he's kind of a utility guy because he doesn't have a set position. But he's an interesting guy because he gets on base a ton, right? Like, he's he's kind of a unique player in that there's not a lot of power, but he gets on base, and so they're. They're not a perfect roster in that sense, but they are pretty deep. And yeah, I don't feel like that. I feel like there's still like one stud away from really pushing things over the top, um, you know, with this group. But at the same time, it's really good and it's more than good enough um, in the Central Division right now. I mean, I think Milwaukee's still going to be very good, but the other three teams are likely not competitive for a playoff spot. And so. Um, you know, if they can get things lined up and maybe maybe they're better 
their better use of prospect capital is to trade for a starter at the deadline um, as opposed to spending a ton of money on Rodon. I think they've positioned themselves well for that. And now the question is, are they willing to move to keep prospect to the deal to be able to acquire somebody of impact? I think that's the question that, that we're going to spend the first half of the season kind of looking at with them. And we tend to know the answer on that in most years. Maybe that changes this year, but for you know the last decade or so, it really hasn't been their M.O., no pun intended. And Mike, I, I did want to follow up. You mentioned how the lineup, there's some uncertainty there. Is there anything you think they could do, whether it be via free agency or a guy that's been rumored in trade requests that you think would make sense for them to improve some of that uncertainty? No, not really. I mean, the thing is that we're pretty well picked over on the free agent market, right, for position players at this point. I mean, your best guys that are out there are like, you know, in free agency, at least in terms of how you project them to be to to be for this year or probably Dansby Swanson, who I think is going to get a big payday um, and who, you know, I I personally, I have ranked way behind the other three shortstops that were on the free agent market. Um, And like Gene Segura, you know, who's a nice player, but um, you know, I don't know that he necessarily fits with the Cardinals. Um, You know, could they add someone to DH some, I suppose, but that might end up being Nolan Gorman's best spot with Arenado at third and, with, I do think that some of the shift restrictions are going to have a bigger impact on defensive positioning and who's able to play second base than it is on, on a number of the hitters. And so I wonder a little bit about that with Gorman. But I, I don't see a name that's out there right now that makes a lot of sense. Murphy made sense, right, because they had a need to catch her and they had a need to upgrade the offense. And all of those those things were, were important. I'm just not sure that that there's that guy that's out there right now. And quite frankly, it's a pretty quiet trade market. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the other thing that we've been, you know, the, the, the three team deal, notwithstanding, I mean, we saw a couple of guys get moved early that were in the last year of deals, but like trying to find starting pitchers and trying to find impactful position players that are available via trade. Like there's just not a ton of them there. And the teams that, that do have them, whether it's, you know, the diamondbacks who have like thick, literally thick, center fielders on their 40-man roster that they could deal from, or the Blue Jays who have three catchers. You know, they're not necessarily deals that line up well with what the Cardinals are looking for or, or what the Cardinals have to offer necessarily. So I think there's that, that part of it is that they're kind of hemmed in, but the strength of their roster coming back for next year is pretty strong. And, you know, the fact that they, they are so confident in Tommy Edmond being able to play shortstop every day is a huge boost. I mean, if they're right on that, that's a, that's a big difference maker for them because that's been a position that's been that I felt like they needed to upgrade for a long period of time. If you can get decent offense out of second and Edmund can hold down the position defensively, I think you have to feel pretty good about where they're at. Mike, we'll get you out of here on this one, and thanks so much for the time. We really do appreciate it today. Just final thing on the Cardinals. When you look at them, and I know compared to the division, they look really good. But part of that is because of the lack of quality in this division outside of Milwaukee. When you look at them, though, compared to the Dodgers, Padres, Mets, Phillies, and Braves, the other uh, behemoths in the National League right now that have all seemingly gotten better this offseason, how do you think the Cardinals compare to those other legit contenders in the NL? Yeah, I mean, I think they're a legitimate contender. I think that there's, I mean, I could answer that question a lot easier if I knew what we were going to get out of Jack Flaherty this year, right? Like in terms of how many innings he was going to be able to throw. If you can tell me that Flaherty's going to give them 180 innings, 
I'm going to feel really good about their chances because I think they've got a guy that can line up in game one with just about anybody. Um, you know, if, it, if it's not the case, then I don't really feel as good. But I think, you know, listen, you guys saw this firsthand last year, right? The Cardinals were a better team than the Phillies. They just were. The Phillies won the National League pennant. Doesn't matter. Get to the dam. Anything can happen. The, we, we spend a lot of time trying to talk through these, are they legitimate World Series contenders? Are they this? Are they this? And the fact is, is that, one, we're really bad at predicting regular seasons anyway. Fortunately, <laughs> statistical analysis helps us in that regard because we have a far broader data set to work with in 162 games. And, and I'll go back to a book that Baseball Prospectus wrote like 15 years ago called Baseball Between the Numbers, and there was an entire chapter called Why Billy Beans, You Know What, Doesn't Work During the Playoffs. And the fact is, is that the playoffs are such a like, – it's a random number generator, right? It, like, and If the infield is playing back when Segura's up, the Cardinals might win game one in the, in the, the, the wild card round, and then, it's, then we're not even having this conversation. Maybe they're the team that goes to the World Series. So I think it's just a matter of get to the playoffs, get in and see what happens, and then whoever wants to write the stories about what kind of referendum this passes on – the style of baseball works, that's fine, but then you can just go ahead and click on somebody else's website. Mike, appreciate the time as always. It's always great to catch up with you. Really appreciate the insight that you can give us on the Cardinals, and we'll talk with you again as we get closer to the regular season opening up once again. All right, sounds good, guys. Happy holidays. You got it. Same to you. That's Mike Farron, one of the best baseball analysts in the business. You can hear him over on MLB Network Radio. You can also follow him on Twitter. He's at Mike underscore Farron. I think what he said there at the very end is what Cardinals fans don't want to hear, which is, hey, John Mosaloc might be right. <laughs> His whole philosophy on the playoffs, what if he's right? That it is indeed a crapshoot. And if there's a team that you want to look at to, like, maybe put in the in favor of what Mo has said, it's the Dodgers. I mean, the Dodgers have spent crazy amounts of money. They've given out all these contracts to legit superstars. They've had the front end starting pitching. They've had the legit closers. They've had a million different arms. They've had the big time prospects. They've spent in international signings. They've done everything that Cardinals fans want the team to do. And guess what it's amounted to? One World Series in the pandemic season. That's it. It's all that it has amounted to over this time because it's all about winning the World Series, winning in the end. And they have had the same amount of success as a lot of other teams, as the Atlanta Braves. That that is what makes it difficult to prognosticate on all of this stuff. That being said, I, I do genuinely believe there are things that you can do to give yourself a better chance in the playoffs. I think having a legit stud at the front end of your rotation helps you get through. I think having a bunch of arms that could be in your bullpen helps to get through. So I I think there's stuff that makes it more likely that you get to the final portion of the dance. But it it is, in a lot of ways, a a random number generator, like you said. I I think, to me, the random number generator one is the wild card round. Like, a best of three, anything can legitimately happen. I mean, we've seen it in the regular season. We've seen the Cardinals drop two of three, if not three straight to a team that has the worst record in baseball. So to me, it's a wild card round definitely is the random generator. I think once you get to the best of five, usually the better team prevails. And I know a lot of people go, well, the Phillies were the lowest seed. How's that possible? But again, when you go back and you start to dissect that series, you go into when they played, I believe it was Atlanta, if my memory serves me correct. And in the second half of the season, the Braves, or the, the Phillies were playing really well. They were one of the best teams yeah. in the National League and, and, after and the, the second half. And the Braves pitching, the starting pitching had at that point really kind of yeah. – 
just broken. I mean, it, it's the same story with the Dodgers uh, two years ago when they went up against um, the Giants. The Giants, yeah, the Giants. When they had like Scherzer, who was having to start every day because they had nobody else that could throw, and it ended up killing Max Scherzer's arm. I mean, you look at the Braves last year. Strider was coming off an injury and wasn't built back up. I believe Freed, if I remember correctly, had like the flu or something and had to try and pitch through that. So on paper, they were the better team. I think the one series I can point to where I thought for sure Philly was not the better team on paper was the San Diego series. I thought San Diego had been playing better. Well, I thought they had the all-around better staff, and then they were able to upset them, and then the better team in the Houston Astros won because they were the better team on paper. So every now and then I think it does occur in the playoffs outside the wild card round, but I think it's more likely that you get the better team on roster wins. I think if you can avoid the wild card round, it means you've built a good roster that should be able to sustain itself through the playoffs. And And if you look at the successful team, over the long term, you look at the Houston Astros who find their way to the World Series and find their way winning World Series, and it's not from spending all of the money in the offseason. It's from developing talent and recognizing talent. And previously it was from tanking. Like that, That's where they got their start, was tanking, getting some really high prospects, and kind of riding those guys into what they have now become. Um, to, to your point on avoiding the wild card, the cost of doing that is building a 100-win team. And the Cardinals just don't really do that. They build 95-win teams to get in. They don't tend to build 100-win teams to get through. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, if you could add one of those players that you think maybe gets them to that 100-win threshold, who is the free agent that you would add to the Cardinals roster? You get to pick one. Who's that guy? Text us, 65780. The mic drop features on the 101 ESPN app. We'll give you our answers coming up at 1.30. NFL Quick Hitters coming up next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. NFL quick hitters. Let's start with the news of the day. This comes from Jeremy Fowler of ESPN.com. There's been a lot of speculation and words that have been written and spoken about Odell Beckham Jr. This year, Jeremy Fowler wrote earlier today that Odell Beckham Jr., according to multiple NFL teams, is, quote, leaning towards sitting out the entire 2022 regular season and postseason and then signing with a new team at the start of free agency in March. I think if you've been reading the tea leaves, it's kind of all been leading towards this, Alex. This is not shocking, especially after the report came that the Cowboys didn't even know if he was healthy enough to play at any point this year. I think this is smart. Odell was reportedly asking for a multi-year deal from whoever he signed with. If you're a team, I wouldn't do that if I didn't know he was healthy. I think it makes sense for all parties for Odell to just sit out the season, hang out, and then next year sign with somebody. Yeah, because somebody's going to probably overpay or give you the multi-year deal you're looking for. And, I mean, also read the tea leaves of the two teams that would have probably signed him. Buffalo gets Cole Beasley out of retirement. The Cowboys get T.Y. Hilton. It, It just, if you're Odell Beckham right now and you're looking at it, you're saying, well, I'm not going anywhere to be number two on their team. And I want a multi-year deal, and they're unsure about my injury. So, yeah, it would make the most sense to wait out right now, and he'll probably get paid a lot of money in the offseason because somebody's going to want a wide receiver. Yeah, the moment that report came out from Dallas that they weren't sure he was healthy, I was like, well, nobody's signing him because it's just too risky to 
pay him a decent amount of salary this season to come in and potentially re-risk injury too and that's the other factor yeah. of it too because then you could really hurt the other years if it's going to be a multi-year deal i think this even ultimately just screams more to me that he's going back to the giants a team that's going to be looking for some more weapons i'm not sure they're going to stick with daniel jones i'm not quite sure what they do at the quarterback position i think they may look for a stopgap guy i've said this a couple of times jimmy garoppolo makes some sense for them go surround him with some weapons bring back saquon then you bring in odell beckham jr to be your number one wide out draft a wide out in the draft this year too I think he. I think when he gets the multi-year deal, I think it's going to be a team that's looking for him to be the number one guy. And I think the Giants make sense when you're looking in the future. That's kind of where I'm leaning as well. I think it makes sense for all parties. I think that it's a smart move for Odell. I think it's a smart move for the teams as well. Tomorrow night and Thursday night football. I spoke about this during my FanDuel read. We've got the Seahawks against the 49ers. It is in Seattle. We don't know what the situation is with Brock Purdy. I think people are kind of expecting him to play at this point. Guys, I think this might be a win-or-go-home type of a game for the Seahawks. They lost last week at home against the Carolina Panthers. They looked rough. It was Geno's worst game of the year. Put up numbers when it comes to the passing yardage, but he some bad, bad decisions led to turnovers. Their defense couldn't get a stop. Against the 49ers, this is a really tough matchup for them because the 49ers would love nothing more than to just run the, fo- run the football 30 times in this game with Christian McCaffrey. And if the... F- if this uh, Seattle Seahawks allow them to do that, they're going to lose. But next week they go to Kansas city. The week after that, they play against the New York jets. I'm not sure that there's an easy win for them until the final week of the season where they take on the LA Rams. Whoa. That's it. They're at seven <laughs> wins right now. Alex, if they lose this week, do you think that they are officially on they're probably not going to be in the playoffs watch? Yeah, because Detroit's got all the momentum right now. And Detroit's going to trend in the right direction. You figure one of Washington or the Giants are going to mm-hmm. fall out of that playoff bubble there. So, yeah, I think this is going to be a massive game for them. The key with Seattle, I think, is they get Kenneth Walker back. And that changes the dynamic of their game because their backup running backs just aren't as good as Kenneth Walker. So this one will be interesting. But, yeah, because Detroit has been playing so well, honestly, because Carolina has been playing well, um, and then who knows with the Green Bay Packers. And again, I think one of those playoff spots are going to be open still because Washington and the Giants are going to fall out of grace. But I think Seattle's got a tough, tough hill to climb to get into that. Yeah, I think it is must win because I think they got to win two of the four down the stretch to at least be considered I think a playoff that tie team. between the commanders and the Giants might have ended up screwing them. Yeah, because both I, of those teams could win two games down the stretch and they will be a half game in front of the Seahawks if the Seahawks end up winning nine games. And I said this on I think it was Monday after the weekend slate. I Giants, Commanders, is Sunday Night Football this week. I think the winner of that game is going to get, I think the loser is going to ultimately fall out, whether that's to Seattle or it is Detroit. I mean, you look at Detroit's schedule, it's very favorable down the stretch. They got a tough one this weekend at the Jets. Then you got Panthers, Bears, Packers. But they can win those three. So I think if you're Seattle, it's must win because I'm not going to favor them in the two games leading up to that Rams game. Hey, should blow the hell out of the Rams but I uh if you don't win too I, I don't see how you can sneak in if they don't win this weekend I think both Washington and New York get in the reason why I say that is because like for example let's say Washington wins on Sunday they, they are now up to eight wins I think that they should beat the Cleveland Browns in week 17 that gets you to nine because they have that tie they would then finish the season at nine seven and one the Giants, in that scenario, would lose this weekend against the Washington Commanders. They probably beat Indianapolis. They would be favored, at least, in Week 17. And then in Week 18, they travel to Philadelphia to play against the Eagles. The Eagles might have everything tied up at that point. 
they very well could end up resting their starters. That's what Andy Reid has done in the past. That's what Doug Peterson, or excuse me, that's what I would imagine Nick Sirianni is probably going to do in that game. They win that one. Now you've got the Giants and the Commanders in at nine wins. And because they lost this week, the Seahawks might end up being out with a nine-win season this year. I think this is a win-or-go-home type of a game for the Seahawks. This is a huge one for them on Thursday night football. Coming up in 15 minutes, we'll hit the BK and Ferrario Rewind. But next, if you could add one, only one, free agent that is still out there on the open market, who would it be given the contract expectations? We'll tell you our answers. We'll hear from some of yours coming up next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. In 10 minutes, we're hitting the BK and Ferrario rewind. But I did want to have a discussion about the remaining free agency market. I saw this earlier today. Uh, according to at least one list, I think it's the e- or the Athletics list. 30 of their top 50 free agents have now been signed. So the free agency market is quite depleted. The only shortstop that remains from that top tier that we were talking about is the one that none of us were particularly interested in, and that's Dansby Swanson. You look at the free agency pitching market, it's basically Carlos Rodon, Nathan Avaldi, and then if you squint, you can maybe see some guys that could have a good year this upcoming season, none of which really make a whole lot of sense for the Cardinals. Now, the reliever market, it's still pretty good. There's a lot of guys out there that could definitely help any team, including the Cardinals, If you could add one free agent that still remains, there's some good left-handed bats out there as well. Alex, who would you be targeting? Take into account what the expected salary, what the expected contract is going to be. Who would you throw your money at if you were John Mosellock, if you could sign one more free agent? I think it's one of the bullpen pitchers. And I I mean, kind of pick your poison with this. We talked about it yesterday, but like Adam Adovino or Craig Kimbrell, I would go with one of those two. And taking the cost into consideration where I'm thinking I'm probably a one-year deal, maybe an option onto it. That would be my choice because I, as what Tanner said last season, I would like to really focus on tightening up that bullpen. I think your rotation is fine. I think you got a lot of numbers to names to throw at uh, your offense. I want a bullpen guy. So my personal preference would be Craig Kimbrell, but I'd be fine with an Adam Ottavino also. Yeah. I, I like the Ottavino one. He's one that I would put up there too. Uh, in terms of on my list, I, I think number one for me, going with just money and what I think the Cardinals are going for, I would say that it would probably be Corey Knable. I'm really high on Knable because I think if he's healthy, he's a guy that is elect got electric stuff, can go and be seventh, eighth inning man for you. And when he's right, his stuff looks like he's throwing a wiffle ball. So he would probably be number one on my list. Now, if you said I had like unlimited resources, I would put Benintendi ahead of Knable on my list because... Well, yeah, you can sign whoever. I, no, I mean, I'm going to probably sign Car- uh, Carlos Rodon. So yeah, you can go ahead and sign a, a middling outfielder if you want to. So the... You didn't have to describe him that way. Yeah, you have to use that he's adjective. Solid. He's a legit starter. I, I, I think, though, if you told me, okay... The realistic side of things, who would you want? I would go Corey Knable. If I can do anybody, it, it would be Ben Benintendi because you mentioned this to Mike Farron when we had him on. Um, you can kind of squint at this bullpen and you can see where pieces can fall into place and you can have a third arm that emerges as being that third threat in the bullpen that can have swing and miss stuff. Thompson, we saw some electric stuff from him. Is he Can he move up into that role? We saw Hicks' swing and miss stuff improve down the stretch of last season. Maybe he can become 
that guy again for you. Uh, maybe there's someone in the minors that we haven't talked about. The guy they drafted in the Rule 5 draft has potential stuff. So I, I can squint at the bullpen and I can go, okay, they can probably, there might be somebody that emerges here. They can develop that third arm or they can go get someone at the deadline. There's always bullpen arms available. I, I think there's just too much uncertainty that I for my liking in the outfield. So if I could go get anybody, it'd be Benintendi. I would want Benintendi to, on a three, four-year deal, like the Hanniger deal, as you mentioned earlier. I can bring him in, and I can go, okay, left field next three years, I know we've got Andrew Benintendi. I, I buy into what he's done the last two years. I know you mentioned that as a question mark for you, what he was sure. with the Royals and what he was with the, Yan- or the Yankees when he was partially there and then got hurt. I think that's who he is. I, I think he's a good, solid, get-on-base, hit-at-the-top-of-your- order bat that the Cardinals could use and provide some certainty to the outfield. And that way I know I've got Benintendi here the next three years. Walker's going to be there. Two of my corner, two of my three outfield spots are locked up and I have some certainty. And then that other one is just, okay, who's going to be that third outfielder for me? I can figure that out. I actually like the idea. It makes a lot of sense. I don't know that they're going to be willing to give the multi-year offer to somebody to be in the outfield because I think that what they would say is we really do think internally the Cardinals believe Jordan Walker is going to be one of those players that is your everyday starter. And it it seems abundantly clear at this point, they believe Lars Newbar is going to be that guy as well. And I think that's just a place where you fundamentally disagree, where y- your view of Newt is probably a fourth outfielder with the upside to be more. Their view of him is definitely a starter, worst case scenario, fourth outfielder. So I think that's where those two things don't align. And that's how you could end up getting to the Benintendi spot. I don't think that they will be. But I get it because he's a good player that comes in and just establishes himself as an everyday starter. He's a better version of what Corey Dickerson, what they thought he could be last year as a starting left fielder for him. For me, said this from the beginning from today, I've officially talked myself into the Carlos Rodon idea. Carlos Rodon is going to cost you a lot of money. Every pitcher that you want to add, whether it be at the trade deadline via trade or next year during the offseason, it's going to cost you a lot. Because the market has just changed. It changed right before our very eyes over the last, really, month or so. And suddenly, these guys are getting crazy money. And teams are willing to give out a lot of years. So I looked at what next year's free agency market is. Because the Cardinals are going to be in it based on what they have currently in their rotation. It's pretty damn good, honestly, as currently constructed. Julio Urias, Aaron Nola, uh, Hugh Darvish, Blake Snell, Tyler Malley. Uh, Frankie Montes and Luis Severino all expected to be free agents next offseason. There is also the potential that Max Scherzer could opt out of his contracts to be a free agent as well. It's a loaded starting pitching class. But let's think about this reasonably. The Cardinals going to win a bidding war against the Dodgers for Julio Urias when they have a need for a front end starter? I'd be pretty surprised. Are they going to win a bidding war against the Phillies who have shown... An ability to seemingly find money out of nowhere for any pitcher, any player that they want. No, Aaron Nola is going to probably stay there. Hugh Darvish is, is interesting to me. I like Blake Snell, but he has some of the same questions as what you're looking at right now with Carlos Rodon. And I would imagine that his contract is going to be similar to Rodon's. Tyler Malley's good, but he's probably a number three for you. He profiles more of the Jordan Wa- or Jordan Montgomery type. And the same thing is really true for Montes and Severino. So when you look at that, I think that I would rather just sign Carlos Rodon now, have a full year of him with Goldie and Arenado while they're still in their primes. I can flip. I know people, this is where I lose some people. I can flip Jordan Montgomery for an outfielder that hits left-handed. So that way, then I don't have to go trade for the guy that you're talking about, Tanner. And maybe it ends up being like a Nick Gordon, who's an outfielder for the Minnesota Twins, uh, D Gordon's brother. So uh, maybe I go do that. And that's just an example of the type of trade that you could make. 
And now I have saved a bunch of money, $10 million from Jordan Montgomery. I'm basically spending the extra 20 to get a guy that is much better in Carlos Rodon when healthy. That would be the move that I would make. That would be the one free agency, quote unquote, splash that I would have left in me. And now you've got that guy signed up kind of like your ID in the outfield, Tanner, to be the front end starter in your rotation for the next five years. It's going to be costly. It's not going to be easy. They're going to have to gulp and take that that pill. But I think it's worth it this offseason to go ahead and do that. It's hard to deny that it's all it's worth it. I, I mean, it's I'm I'm still skeptical on it. But if you get it done, I'm not going to be sitting here upset about it because you're adding an ace to your team where, as we talked about with these other free agents, you know, the hell with the back end of the years. We're talking about this year, next year and the year after a three year window where you could be in a World Series conversation. And even if it is a random number generator like Mike Farron mentioned, I'd like the odds in terms of that random number generator. If you put an ace on the staff, it's just going to be it's going to be very concerning if you look at a six, seven year deal for a player like that. But might be worth it. And I think this is also where we kind of differ, because if they sign Rodon, would I come on the air and go, oh, that's a terrible deal? I might say it's I wouldn't do it with the length. It's a seven year. I could see how it would be concerning. I, I would I would be concerned, but I won't crush them for doing it because we've been saying they should go spend money. So would I be upset about it? No. Would I have some concerns? Yes. But I think the part that I think we're differing in a little bit, too, is when I'm looking at the outfield and you're looking at the rotation is. I guess I'm thinking more short-minded, too, and you're thinking more long-term with sure. the rotation, looking at it from the 2024 perspective, because I'd rather I, – I wouldn't. I shouldn't say I'd rather. I just look at 2024 and go, I'll worry about that issue when we get there. Let's lock up one of the guys that we have on this roster now. And I look at it, too, and I go, what's the floor for the rotation this year and what's the floor for the outfield? I think that the rotation's floor – isn't as bad as what the outfields has the potential to be. Because if you miss out, O'Neal does not get back to himself. Carlson is what he was last year. Newt doesn't pan out to be the guy that you thought he was. I actually think you're right on that. I I think the floor is a lot lower. So that's where I see more concern. And I say, okay, I can prop up the floor by adding more certainty and bringing in Benintendi. And then the rotation problem, I can start to figure out next offseason. And also, then I have outfield pieces I can move around. I saw someone say, well, that's a lot of guys. What are you going to do with it? Who cares? I'll move some of those guys. I, I can move a... Yeah, Pezzo, Burleson. If Carl- now maybe you Burleson have the appetite for Send Carlson. Send down to AAA. You're fine. Yeah. You can figure this out. You've so, got the roster spots that, I think that's where we're differing a little bit, too. I think the difference is I'm looking at ceiling, you're looking at floor. I- I'm trying to up what the ceiling looks like for the Cardinals as opposed to upping the floor. I, the floor is what it is at this point. I, I think it's pretty high for this team, and I, I agree with you on the rotation. The floor for the rotation is, is okay. Um, in the outfield, there are a lot of questions there. I'm looking at, okay, what what do you need to do to potentially put you in that conversation with the best of the best? I don't think Andrew Benintendi does that for me. I do think Carlos Rodon might. I think there's a chance that with him and Flaherty and Michaelis and Matt's probably as your number four and Wayno as your number five, that rotation can stack up with just about anybody if, if it all ends up going the right way. I don't know if my outfield is going to stack up with anybody if... Andrew Benintendi is the game changer. See, I, I find it interesting because I think if you sign Rodon and then the floor hits on the if the floor happens with the outfield, I don't think it matters that you brought in Rodon because Fair then point. I don't think you get the. I think what's easier though is it easier to fix that outfield problem midseason or the starting pitching problem of not having an ace midseason? I, I would if have Flaherty to, doesn't work out. I would probably say the rotation one. Really, you think uh, it's easier to get oh, an no, sorry, ace sorry, than sorry, a starting sorry. outfielder? I would say the outfield one. It's harder to fix the rotation one. And is what that's I'm why I would try to find a floor outfielder midseason as opposed to trying to find that ace midseason. But I, at this point, I think if you have three floor outfielders or below that, you have three open outfield spots. I'm not sure just going and finding one guy. You'd have to almost do what the Braves did, which they did do, which is they brought in what was it, Duvall, Rosario, 
Peterson, go and like reshape the whole outfield. Yep. And I and just don't know if there's a willingness to do that. And I'm concerned there's not even a willingness to go add a starter at the deadline if needed to. We're hitting the rewind next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Hey, if you missed anything from today's show, be sure to check it out on the podcast page, 101ESPN.com, and the free 101 ESPN app is where you can go ahead to find it. Finish things off with the BK and Ferrario Rewind. We've got the fast lane coming up here in just about five minutes or so. Uh, Tanner, there was one other thing that I, I did want to get to uh, from that last segment. It's kind of a little bit of a carryover uh, for this, and it's Looking at when you talk about the rotation versus the outfields and where you feel better about being light, what do you think the Cardinals are more likely to add as we get to the end season portion of things? Because if you have the outfield and you have like seven different options that could be starters for three spots, you've got more outs. You've got potential for a bunch of different guys that could capture those jobs. In the starting rotation, you, you've really just got the one guy that can capture that spot of being a legit ace, in my opinion, and that's that's Jack Flaherty. So if he doesn't work out, you got to go find that guy. Do you think the Cardinals are more likely to trade for an outfielder or a starter as we get into the season? Do you think this is the year where they actually are willing to trade that capital in season? I would say no. It's just it's not the mo from Mo in this front office is to trade the capital needed to go get an ace. And like when and even when we say that, just kind of looking ahead to what I think the market's going to play out to be. The only name that jumps out to me that might be available is Pablo Lopez, because I don't think Shane Bieber will be dealt at the deadline. I don't think Glasnow will be dealt at the deadline if the Rays are winning. And those are really the two big names that we've talked about that could potentially be available. I I don't buy the Max Fried rumor that he's on the block, and there's no way the Braves won't be losing next year that they'll look to trade him. So it comes down to, would you be willing to give up to capital for Pablo Lopez? My guess is probably not. I think he'd be more willing to add outfielders. They've done it in the past. You mentioned Brandon Moss earlier when we were talking about Joey Gallo all or nothing. We saw the Cardinals willing to go add him on the cheap at the deadline one year. So I would say it's probably more likely that they would be willing to add a outfielder that you can get that's always available at the deadline Do a deal like what Houston did last year for like a Trey Mancini. You can always go find those guys that can just bring some power to your lineup. I'd say it's the outfielder. I don't think they'll give up the capital for an ace. Yeah, I'm kind of the same spot there too because I – They've had multiple seasons in the past where they've needed an ace and they just said that we're going to stick with it or we'll go out there and get a depth guy for it. And if there's a weakness in the outfield, I could see them saying, well, let's go get this because there's more guys available than the aces. I always think there's available upside power bats and relievers at the deadline. It's why I I tend to be okay if you go into the season where you've kind of got to you got to hope and pray on your bullpen. I'm okay with that so long as you're willing to trade for guys at the at the deadline. And the Cardinals in the past have been willing to do that. They've shown a a propensity to go out there and acquire the guy that is necessary to fortify the bullpen. And they also have a bunch of prospects that are pitching prospects that could help you in the bullpen by the end of the season as well. So they've got outs there as well. I I, I haven't seen them really do that in the rotation. They they added guys that helped them last year. But as much as we liked Montgomery, as much as we liked Quintana, those guys aren't aces. And I think the I think Major League Baseball told you what they thought of Jose Quintana this offseason. He got a two year, $26 million deal. It's decent money. 
It's not an, they are expecting him in New York to be a, a four starter. That's what he's going to be signed to do there. That's probably what he would have been if he had come back here in St. Louis as well. So I, I think they do need that front end starter. The question is, do you get that with Carlos Rodon or do you try to trade for it? That those are really their only two options right now. And I just don't know if that guy is available via trade right now. So I've got my, my antennas up on the Carlos Rodon market. Feels like it's heading to the Yankees. But we'll see. For Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. The Fast Lane's coming up from 2 to 6 right here on 101 ESPN. I bet 100 bucks. Mo called Boston this morning. He read this article and wait a minute. They're interested in Paul DeYoung? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Get me Bloom on the phone. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. (laughs) Yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. You used to associate crickets with silence. But since you bought a house in the suburbs, you know crickets hate silence. If any other creature realized rubbing its legs together made a piercing high-pitched noise, they might think, maybe I won't do that. Constantly. All night long. Luckily, you can save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto. Now that's something to make noise about. Just not constantly. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers.